Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. When I was two years old, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was at that point a generation wish. I was laying there, practically, and I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes, I, I believe my eyes were all right back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, to conspiranormal i think that we should do a whole show about a true mystery and that would be where is luke that should be our you know like just like our show no guests just where's where's luke at because he's not here (laughs) i'd worry about him if it wasn't like such a um I, I hadn't expected it. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, right? You know, I sent him a text about uh, two o'clock today, and he he said he said I'm out skating, dude. I'm over at the skate park, and uh, you know, I was like, well, just do some thrashing for me, okay? And I was like, okay, you coming to the show? Yeah. Sent him a text about an hour, about I don't know, about thirty forty minutes ago, and nothing. Try to call nothing. So we're Lucas again tonight. But uh, Rob is here in his uh, in the robe. Yeah, I had to go in and change real quick and get in the costume. 
the glorious samurai robe. <laughs> and uh, we didn't know if we were going to make it tonight just because, uh, well, you, Rob, you could tell what happened with your computer earlier. Man, I, I've i stuck with Microsoft throughout the years because I don't have a choice, but they really piss me off sometimes. I've been good. I, I just finally got comfortable with Windows 7. Yeah. Which obviously now we're at Windows 10. I don't know. What, were you like Windows XP before or something? Yeah, or? yeah. I went from Windows XP to Windows 7. Really? And, wow. And I was comfortable with Windows 7. Like, I well, I don't understand the point of upgrading something if it's working perfectly fine. Yeah. You know, I everything about it is is good. It's golden. It does what I want it to do. It runs the software I need it to run. And for six months now, Windows 10 has been sending me these messages like, "Oh, you can upgrade for free. It's time to upgrade." And I keep saying, "No, I don't have a problem. Nothing's broken." leave me alone and finally today i was in the middle i i'd been i do these radio edits every week because we have we have the show on a couple different different internet stations so i do these special special edits for the radio and it it takes me a little while like a couple hours of work and it's not bad but i was just getting to the end of doing it today and all of a sudden a window popped up that said congratulations windows 10 has been downloaded and your computer is going to restart and install it (laughs) I was like, there's, there was no no button or any question involved in it. It was just, uh, this You're is what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. You're doing it now. <laughs> you better go take a break. So, yeah, we, we we sat here watching the little meter fill up right up until about a uh, half hour before showtime. <laughs> it was pretty stressful. Yeah, like, I get here and he's like, um, just doing, uh, had to do this update. Is it 17%? Thankfully, I got here real early. And thankfully it happened earlier and that happened like we were in the middle of the show or something, you know? Yeah. That'd be we crazy. To, that would have been ridiculous. <laughs> we would talking to the guest and then all of a sudden just like nothing. <laughs> so if you have a windows computer and you use it for anything professional, watch out, <laughs> man. I, it's, it's, it's crazy dude, because you know, like I had XP was the first one that I really had. Like the first computer I had had XP on it for real. And then they went to Vista and Vista was just kind of crappy. I avoided it for it. Yeah. Yeah. Forever. And windows seven, uh, I liked it, but what in the world have we here? Somebody's coming in. Oh, that's just Alyssa. It's not, it's not Luke. (laughs) Um, momentous, momentous week this week, man. Uh, this was in the world of politics. Um, this is some historic stuff. I have never, ever seen the nominee from the year, the election year before come out against the potential nominee, the potential front runner of their own party. And this, and if anybody doesn't know I'm referring to, or you've been living under a rock this whole week. It's uh, Mitt Romney coming out on Thursday talking about Trump and telling people not to vote for Trump. This was, to me, this was some of the craziest stuff. And I think it really shows how interesting this election year could be. Yeah. To be honest, I've never been so apprehensive about a political race before. I know. I mean, I've always had my preferred candidate or whatever, but it's never been. Um, it's never been so, so intense. So I've never, I, I don't know. I've just never been so worried about the future. <laughs> and, and it's only really intense, I think on the Republican side, really, um, you know, I, Bernie Sanders well, and, and Hillary, that's been more, much, so much more of a civil race than 
it way has. The Republicans it, have handled it. Worries me lately. just as much though. Yeah, but it has been a lot less in the media. There's been a lot less drama surrounding it, which I think is strange considering her her current situation. Right. And man, that could possibly turn on a dime too. Mm-hmm. Um, if she gets indicted, which I doubt she will, you know, are they going to hand it over to Sanders? You know, what's going to happen? But uh, there's some things I want to talk about, but I'm going to have to do it in the outro because we're going to go to the guest here pretty soon. So we don't have much time, but there's a lot of things going on in the Republican party right now. And they are afraid of Trump. And with the potential of running this guy as their nominee. And that's obvious Mm -hmm. when you have Mitt Romney coming out and saying that we are, uh, you you, please vote for somebody else. Basically vote for Rubio or Cruz or even Kasich, you know, somehow this guy is still hanging on, you know, that shows to me that something is going to happen if, if Kasich, Rubio, and Cruz can stay in, and yesterday was Super Saturday, and before that we had Super Tuesday, um, Trump won some states in Super Tuesday. Uh, Cruz won, I think, like two, and Rubio actually won Minnesota <laughs> somehow. And yesterday on Super Saturday, as we're recording this, this is March 6th, uh, basically it was pretty much split. Even uh, Cruz won two States. Uh, he won Maine and he won Kansas and Trump won Kentucky and he won Louisiana. So it was split pretty evenly. Um, if they can, if they can keep these guys in, if these guys can keep maintaining their campaign, if they can deny block majority, right. Yeah. If they can deny Trump the votes that he needs or the delegates that he needs, which is like, 1,297 or something like that. I think that's the number that he would need to basically secure the nomination. If they can do that, then it goes over to a brokered convention, which means you go back to how it was before the whole primary system started, where the party bosses are going to basically choose the nominee. Right. That's basically what's going to happen. Two things could potentially happen here. Uh, Trump could walk out, run as a third-party candidate, even though he signed this pledge that he wouldn't, or he becomes a nominee, but a splinter group of Republicans comes, uh, splits off, and, and also runs another and runs a third-party candidate. So you Man, basically I, got a major a, you basically have a party that has been around for over 150 years in the danger of splitting apart. That's momentous. It's going to there's some interesting stuff coming up in this next year. Yeah. One way or another, I, it doesn't even matter who ends up being the nominees. It's going to be it's it's going to go down in the history books. There's going to be it's going to be a circus. Yeah. There's a lot of passion behind a lot of different candidates and for a lot of different reasons. And I don't think no matter how it goes down, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. And I want to get into after we got the guests, I really want to get into some of this stuff that's going on with Trump because here's something interesting. It might blow people's minds, but I actually, there's some things I actually agree with a man about. 
and I want to get into those things and how there's a certain group within the Republican Party that does not agree with those things. And that's what they're really worried about and not other issues such as immigration, such as the things he said about Muslims. They could care less. There's other issues that they're worried about. So I want to stop right there for now. And we will be back in a little bit, but we have Mike Cleland coming on the show. And this is one that I'm really excited about. Uh, We're going to talk about owls and we're going to talk about alien abductions and we're going to talk about abductees and what owls mean as screen memories and also the correlation between real owls sightings by abductees. So this will be interesting. So we will go to the interview and we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. Buckle up for adventures, strap on your thinking gear and prepare yourself to be inspired. The 4th Annual Paradigm Symposium is coming again to Minneapolis, Minnesota on May 12th through the 15th. An eclectic cast of presenters, including Scott Walter from History Channel's America Unearthed, Randall Carlson of Sacred Geometry International, historian and ufologist Rich Dolan, conspiracy, cryptozoology, and UFO writer Nick Redfern, and keynote hermeticist Lon Milo Duquette, as well as several other researchers and pundits in the fields of the academic the weird and the unknown with topics that range from archaeology and hidden history to alternative science, ancient aliens, paleo contact and world mysteries. Tickets are now on sale at the website to see all the details for this amazing event and symposium and to get your tickets now go to ParadigmSymposium.com Come to learn, leave inspired. All right, guys, we're here in the Conspiranormal Studios, and we will not have Luke with us. Just got word that he's not going to make it tonight for some personal reasons. But we do have Mr. Rob, as I mentioned before, in the kimono. That's right. And we have someone that, as I mentioned before also, that I've really wanted to talk to for a long time. And that is Mr. Mike Cleland. And he has written a book called The Messengers. And it's a book about a subject that is, I would say, something that most people really wouldn't think about very often. And that is the relationship of owls to the, and we were talking about this earlier, the alien abduction or or slash contact experience and what that all means. And uh, Mike, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Hey, thank you for coming on. I, I first heard about you uh, with from Micah. I listened to the Graylian Report, and I had just, I think in maybe 2012, I think you were actually with Micah in Asheville when you did that broadcast. And I can remember just being fascinated by what you said. And at that time, we had just started Conspiranormal. I think maybe we were in the teens or the 20s. And a lot of subjects uh, were coming out about owls and not necessarily uh, with the subject that you talk about, but other other uh, aspects of kind of like the owl mythology were, were coming into our show. And that had been happening for a long time. And 
there's lots of things that we that I kind of noticed about owls and how they had to do with the occult and with mythology and and also conspiracy and all these all these different aspects. So I was really fascinated by that. I was like, I got to get this guy on. And finally, I heard that you'd written a book, and uh, here you are to talk about it. So, Mike, I really want to go, really, first of all, kind of let people know what your background is and what experiences do you think happened to you when you were younger that maybe would cause you to think that you might be, again, for lack of a better term, an alien abductee? Well, we talked about this a little bit just before we went on the air, and the, uh, the term um, abductee, abduction yeah. is pretty heavily loaded. It's got a lot of baggage connected to it. And and the problem in a way is with that term is that, you know, you're, I think you could talk to anyone at any shopping mall parking lot anywhere in America and say, you know, define alien abduction. And then they would give you the events that show up on late night TV right. documentaries, you know, with the, with the spooky lighting and the crappy recreation with rubber masks and, and, um, you know, of people being taken from their bed or taken from a lonely road and then put on a table and sort of gruesome things taking place. You know, I, I've heard all those accounts, you know, and I've talked to people who've had those very accounts. Um, it's surprisingly, from my research, it's it's actually kind of low. There's all this other stuff that that isn't easily packaged in that late night TV exploitative documentary format. So um, that said, the term... Uh, abductee is kind of the term we're stuck with. So it's right there on the cover and I use it throughout the book. And then I try to pepper it with other terms like experiencer. And the term I actually like the most is direct contact, but it just sounds really good. You know, like the person has had direct contact, but you kind of have to whatever fit that in the sentence just the right way. But um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting because I was, you know, I'm 53 now. I was probably about 44, which is, it's not even 10 years ago. So when I really started looking into this stuff, um, I had these accounts, I had these stories, a handful of them that I could, you know, I could talk about them. I could sit around like the campfire and share them or like, you know, on a, at a, you know, over dinner or something like that. If someone wanted to hear a funny, you know, here, let's listen to this. Here's a weird story. And I would tell these odd stories. And, and, um, and at a certain point, you know, I started reading UFO literature, abduction literature and, and the, and I just, I, I recognized how telling some of my stories were, you know, they, they fit in so cleanly with what other people had reported in their lives. So I was very, um, uh, I guess in denial in some ways or very cautious to just jump to the conclusion. And, um, and it was only about 10 years ago where I really decided that, uh, I, I needed to look into it. So, and that was, um, you know, in, in doing so, you know, kind of whatever, like the trap door fell out from under me and I was just plummeting into the, uh, to the, into the abyss a little bit. So I'm not sure exactly you have to tell, re-ask your question. I kind of got lost there and then kind of, well, I just wanted to know kind of like what the experiences were, uh, that you had and that you would, that you'd started to remember, to say that, hey, I might, this might have happened to me, this, this, what everybody talks about, or everybody terms as alien abduction or alien contact. What were those experiences that you started to remember around that time? 
Well, I didn't start to remember them. They were very clear memories. Okay. They were, you know, I had t- totally clear memories. I had a picture that I drew when I was 12 years old. I was at a, um, so this would have been 1974 as a 12-year-old boy. I was in a, uh, with a friend. His name was Kenny. We were at a sleepover at his house. And I was, um, I can't remember whether it was him or me. And I don't think I'll ever really remember that. But one of us pointed out the window and said, hey, look. It was nighttime, and, and and we ran to the window and you know, kind of got our faces close to the glass. This upstairs bedroom window in a two-story house in the suburbs of Detroit. And off, it wasn't even that far away as far as the distance. It felt like it was, you know, it's hard to say, right? If it's really big, it could be far away. If it's really small, it could be rather close. But sure. it felt like it was about the size of a, probably bigger than a van um, and smaller than a school bus. Um, and it was this odd round coffee can shaped object and it had like a would be a pencil sticking out the top and it was rotating very slowly and very oddly and we watched it for about you know probably less than a minute 30 seconds maybe uh but you know just just very clear nighttime sky not too far away uh and this thing was rotating in this very strange way it was not a helicopter it was not a balloon it was not an airplane it was not something reflecting on the glass uh, I feel strongly on all those accounts. And, um, you know, there's this weird thing that happens. This chill kind of runs down your spine and you're like, oh my God, you know, and I, and, and, and it was just so otherworldly. And then, um, and then I snapped my finger and yeah, I just snapped my finger, but, and then click, it just disappeared. Hmm. Uh, you know, at the time when I would tell that story in the day, you know, I would always kind of say, "Oh, the lights turned off and we didn't see it anymore." But I always knew I was lying. I never had quite had the nerve to say it disappeared, but that's what happened. It disappeared. Uh, we ran downstairs and uh, we both drew it. And I, this is—I still have the picture that I drew that night. Um, you know, we sat at the kitchen table with pencils and paper, and and I drew it. And it was. Um, you know, there was there was these other associated lights in the sky at the same time that were kind of clicking through the sky, and those didn't seem unusual at all. Those looked entirely normal, but they did bump right into it, in essence, and that was the moment it 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 uh, it clicked away. I mean, those lights, if you saw those at the nighttime sky, you, you would think it's just an airplane or something like that. Those those lights were not at all unusual or striking, except that they um, seemed to bump into the this coffee can shaped object, and then right at that moment, that was when it disappeared um so that happened when i was 12 and then sometime also when i was 12 i was walking home from a high school football game so that was what we did in the neighborhood well i went to the high school football game on friday night and i um wanted to be home in time to see a television show and the show is cole shack the night stalker i'm not sure if you're familiar with that show yeah actually one of the ones that influenced the x-files exactly uh, exactly darren That's- mcgavin yeah yeah, Darren McGavin shows up in a few X Files episodes. Yeah, and and uh, so uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll get back to that in a second. So, um, and that was that made it really easy to search out the date when it happened because it was only on for one season. So I could actually probably figure out the day in a way hmm. by um, I've actually wanted to go back and look at like old archive football game schedules from old newspapers. I can't find any online. So I would have to actually go, you know, back to Michigan and search the files there. It's not really all that important, but it was definitely a Friday night in the autumn of 1974. That's the only time it could have been given that was when the television show was on. So, uh, I'm, it was with another friend. His name was Mike. 
we get to a spot on the sidewalk and I could put an X on the sidewalk with a pencil so easily. Uh, and there was like a flash in the sky, this, this jarring bright orange flash. And both of us were like, what, what just happened? What was that? And it was, it, it felt like God switched, flipped a light switch on. Right. So it's totally calm, pleasant autumn night in the Midwest and then click on, click off. So just for that one second, this guy was orange. No sound associated. There's, and and it we we went through the scene. Could have been a meteor. I know it didn't make sense. It was a meteor. Could it have been an explosion? No, there was no sound. Could have been like one of the like the transformers in a telephone pole exploding or like making a big flash with electric arc or something like that. And that didn't make any sense either. So, um, and then I said goodbye to him. My house, you know, if you lay out of the neighborhood, I would have to walk by my house first, and he would have to walk deeper into the neighborhood to get home. And uh, so television show was about to start at 10. I was kind of, I think I was very eager to see the show. So I wanted no chance of missing it. So I was probably yeah. home at around 930. That was what I thought. And then when I walked into the door, my parents were angry at me. And I was like, what are you angry at me for? And they're like, well, you're, you're out too late. You shouldn't be out this late. This is, it's, it's almost 1130. The 11 o'clock news was ending. And that didn't make any sense at all to me. It just seemed like, uh, like, you know, I, I just, I, I couldn't figure that out. And this was long before anything in the literature, like, you know, but the term missing time had not been coined yet. Right. So, um, so I just was like annoyed that my parents were angry at me. I was bummed that I didn't see this television show. It didn't make any sense. And I, you know, the next Monday at school, I, uh, was sitting with my friend. One, one of them was Mike and some other folks. And I kind of said, Hey, you know, something weird happened. On uh, on Friday night, we saw something weird, and my friend goes, "Yeah, we saw a UFO with lights and everything." Hmm. And he blurted that out. And my first instinct was, uh, my first instinct, my very first instinct was that to say that uh, that you know he's lying, he's making this up, he's jo- he's fibbing, he's joking, he's he's just saying this, he's making this up just to sound you know cool with his group of friends in the junior high school cafeteria. Um, and I, I actually have never gotten a hold of him, and and I certainly should, and it's on my list of things to do in my life. And I just, I just, quite honestly, there was a long stretch where I was quite fearful of getting a hold of him on this subject. Just so, and now it just, in so there, yeah. Eventually, I'll have to ask him about this. And that's interesting because I, I just, I'm very shameless about confronting other people about their experiences. And this one experience, it's very hard for me to, um, you know, to get past that. Have you ever been through any kind of like regression? You know, I've done, I've attempted it three times once, and this is with Barbara Lamb, who's, you know, and Bud Hopkins, I, and then uh, Leo Sprinkle, all three of them have tried it. And I think I was just so nervous and so freaked out about what I was worried I was going to find that I found it very difficult to go under. Um, you know, interestingly, having finished up the book, I'm much more at peace with this stuff now. So I feel like I could, I could look into these things with a little more, with a lot less anxiety. Um, the only, it's interesting. So, you know, the, a few things came up and most of it all came up with Bud. Um, I had, a, I couldn't really go under with either Leo or Barbara. I was just so scared. And then, but with Bud, I went under and I felt like I was, um, you know, it was felt very calm and very peaceful. It's very interesting experience to be hypnotized. It doesn't feel like that different. I mean, you're totally aware you're laying in the, you know, I was lying in a bed and, you know, Bud was sitting right next to me. He's, um, and, you know, there's a recorder going and I have the recording. So 
but it was the only thing that came, you know, so, so Bud said, um, I drew a little map for Bud, right? So I said, here's the neighborhood. Okay. So here's the high school and you walk across this two lane road and you get into the neighborhood here and here's right where the sighting was. And this is where my house is. So I just simple little map. So he had a visual thing in his hand to, and, uh, and then in this thing, he said, okay, now picture your friend's face. And all of a sudden I was like completely like just struck. I'm like, well, what I'm seeing this little kid. I was like some little boy, like young, hmm. you know? And then I was like, wait a minute. He had red hair and freckles. And I was like, wait a minute. That's, that, that, that's him. Um, then I, when I was walking, you know, so he said, okay, you're proceeding along and you cross this road here. And, and he said, you cross this two lane road. And I go, it's a four lane road. And there was a point in my youth when they did construction on that road and changed it from a two-lane road to a four-lane road. So I had drawn it thinking it was a two-lane road and I, you know, but, and then realizing that, you know, they must have changed it. And I, when I crossed it as a 12-year-old boy, it was a four-lane road. So there was a few things of clarity like that, nothing that helped with the, um, with, you know, any memory. So uh, actually when I was, when Bud tried to take me through it, I would kind of freeze up and I'm, he's like, okay, what's happening? Like, well, it's like uh, nothing's happening. It's like, okay, okay, tell me, let's jump to this next thing. Then what happens? And I'm like, uh, nothing happens. We're still standing on the sidewalk. <laughs> and and he just went, he said, okay, let's pretend like you're on a, uh, you're watching it on TV. And, you know, what do you see? And I'm like, well, I see two little boys standing on the sidewalk and they're frozen. Nothing's happening. And I'm like, okay, well, let's see. Uh, let's pretend like you're in a, in like a crane shot thing. Like you're looking down on the scene as if looking down at it from one of those Hollywood camera cranes. And what do you see? And it's like, well, I just see these two little boys stuck on the sidewalk. Um, at the end, and this is one of the last times I saw Bud, uh, he, he kind of, he, he's a really, he was Various gracious guy and he gave me this big bear hug and and said um listen i've been doing this for a long time and i've some, seen some people who are stuck or blocked and you are blocked which some people have said you know i've, I've told this story before and people have said oh you know he's that's he's front-loading things he's giving you information you shouldn't have you know he's not being a prudent researcher and but at the same time i felt like it was really like and felt honest, you know, it felt like he was being, he respected me enough to, to tell me straight up what he thought. So, um, yeah, so that, that story, um, that story. So here's the, the X-Files tie in. Okay. So sometime, so all through my life, I could always tell these two separate stories. One was the missing time event, right? Now I came home from the high school football game and it was two, you know, like two hours of missing time. And then there was this other story where like, yeah, I was walking home from the high school football game and there was this, there was this bright flash of light. And I never, like, I always thought of those as two separate stories. And, um, I was sitting in my house alone. This is back in Idaho, sitting on the couch. And this was back in the day of VHS. And you would, I, I had never actually seen the X-Files when it was on. Um, and so I started renting a VHS, uh, you know, they had the whole first series or the first season at the video rental store. So I, you know, plugged it in and watched it. And at the very end, you know, the pilot, they said, and now an interview with Chris Carter, creator of the X-Files. So I, and in the, he like within, you know, 30 seconds of him talking, he said, you know, there was a television show I really liked as a kid and I wanted to recreate that. I just loved this show. I just loved watching it. And, and the show is called Coal Shack, the Night Stalker. And I'll tell you like, right at that point, wham, 
these two memories just slammed together. Came flooding back, I, yeah. And I realized like that was the same night. And I tell you, like I turned the TV off and I walked around the house for a half hour, like some sort of caged, you know, hyena, you know, like I was just, it was, I just was, it really freaked me out. It's so, a, and at this point, I, I feel strongly that it was the same night, that I, there were not two separate events. Interesting. Yeah, it's amazing how something like that small can can trigger something like that. And, and there was also another event that you you describe in the book, I think in your 30s um, as well, that was significant. I was 30 years old. Yeah, this was an event. It was in rural Maine. I was living in rural Maine. Um, it was wintertime. I can't, I don't know if it was January or February, but it was, it was... Uh, uh, 1993. That was the year Bill Clinton uh, uh, won the election and was inaugurated. Uh, so that would have been right around that time. I was lying in bed and the bed was pushed right up against a window and I was alone in the house and, um, you know, out in the woods and kind of, you know, there's a motion sensor light out by the driveway, which is kind of the way the f- window of the, of the, of the bedroom faced. And uh, all of a sudden, I just remember waking up, oh, there's this bright light in the room. And and I sat up on my elbow and looked outside. And, you know, my face is like, you know, within less than a foot away from the glass of the window. And I look outside and there's this bright light pouring in. And in front of the light, walking towards the home, the house, moving, walking towards the house that I was in, were five spindly gray aliens with the big black eyes. Uh, and this is difficult to talk about because, I mean, there was it was dreamlike. I could yeah. say that it was very dreamlike. I, I don't think it was a dream. Uh, I never dream that I'm actually in the bed that I'm in. So, you know, there I was in the bed that I was in, seeing this uh, this frightening vision and... A bunch of things happened sort of simultaneously. One is that I looked at the light behind the image, excuse me, behind the uh, these these spindly, you know, gray ETs, you know, classic skinny gray, short, three and a half foot tall aliens. And I was focused on the light. Like all of a sudden, I ignored them and looked at this light. And the light wasn't much. I mean, it wasn't wasn't like it was a lying or a, a landed flying saucer. It was much smaller. It was about the size of a washing machine or something. Hmm. And I'll tell you, in my mind, I saw so clearly that it was a um, a movie light, a Hollywood movie light pointed right at the house. That was visually crystal clear. In my mind, I said, well, that's an easy way to do a special effect. Huh. And and in in retrospect, like the next morning, I kind of like back engineered the dream in a way, you know, what I was calling at the time a dream. Um, and I had seen the movie communion that summer. So that was just whatever, five, six months earlier. The, the, uh, in this culmination of the movie, there's a scene where Christopher Walken kind of like goes into the woods and sees this, this bright light. And I don't know that the, it was on VHS again. So the dupe or whatever was kind of low quality. So you could see that it was just a movie light that he was looking and I remember where I was with my girlfriend at the time and I said out loud, I said, oh, well, this is, that's an easy way to do a special effect. Mm. And so in the moment, it, you know, now this is what it felt like. It felt like, you know, when, uh, 
you know, whatever, there's like a Hollywood special effect and they're trying to show the workings of the inside of the computer and you like need to find a file and it goes tick, 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 and then grabs the file. Right. It felt like someone was in my mind and going tick, 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 and they latched onto this memory of watching the movie Communion and just, and just in a nanosecond, just placed it in my mind. So instead of seeing whatever was actually there, I saw a movie light and I actually had the same like internal verbal reaction of saying the same exact thing I had said when I watched the movie, which was, um, that's an easy way to do a special effect. Uh, the next morning, I, I, I never even bothered to go out and, oh, so, so after that, the next thing that happened was um, I heard a voice in my head. It's, it was like, oh, yes, they're here. Now is the time to lay your head on the pillow and shut down. And that's exactly what I did. I mean, I was confronted with something really scary. I should have jumped up and locked the doors or something, but right. I, I didn't. I just calmly laid down, went right back to sleep. You know, it's interesting, Mike, that you uh, that you say that because uh, when you – I heard you, you – talk. Uh, I saw the video of you talking about this in England uh, at the, one of the UFO conferences, and, and I – I felt like I had had a very similar experience when I was a child. However, it wasn't something that I would say is like a the classic gray alien. It was more like a a a ghost encounter. And I had the very same kind of feeling like this is a dream and I can remember just kind of laying my head back down and going to sleep. It was very similar. It was a very similar encounter. It really it really struck me when you said that. Well, it was it was I have since talked to other folks and, and I've asked about this sensation because there's that it wasn't a dream in the normal sense. It was crystal clear, electrically, vividly clear. Right. And that's how I felt about my experience too. Hyper real. Yeah. yeah. And then and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like wasn't wasn't the same. It was like you know, the head in the fishbowl. It was it was it was like it was kind of like like muffled and and like the normal brain chatter that we all have was shut off, click off. And there was this very streamlined thought process, right? There was, was just like a, you know, the thoughts were all alone in this empty void and they were very, they weren't clustered in with anything else. Um, I talked to a woman, her name is um, Bridget Barkley. She's an experiencer from England and I was trying to describe the sensation and she's had a lot of uh, contact experiences. She said that, you know, when you take two magnets, <clears throat> you know, and you kind of flip the poles around so they repel each other right. and you try to push them against each other, but they're actually repelling each other. There's that weird kind of undulating force that you can sense. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a force pulling against each other. Yeah. Well, they're pre yeah they're pushing they're they're opposing they're pushing away, but there's this kind of warbly kind of kind of energy there that's palpable when you've got the two magnets in your hand. She said, "You know what it was like? It was like being in between those magnets." And I was like, "That is exactly what it felt like. It felt like being in between the two magnets." Where, and as soon as she said that, I knew her and I had experienced the same thing. I've since experienced that a handful of other times. Um, all of them in association with with uh, UFOs. One of them was actually a very vivid dream, which I am quite convinced was a dream. Um, but um, yeah, so let's let's get into the owls because this is the fascinating. This is fascinating stuff. Um, 
how did you become involved in this research on owls? What experience brought you to to start looking into the well, you have people that have these these alien abductions and you have the concept of the screen memory, which I want to get into in a little bit. And you have that with owls, but you're looking at encounters with the real owls, physical owls that we could see all the time that are around us all the time. How did you get well, into we, we that? We don't see them all the time because they're out at night. So right. owls are pretty mysterious and elusive. I mean, I think they're all, they're out there all the time. There's owls all over the place. Yeah. They're very common, but very rarely seen just because they come out at night. And, and, um, uh, I had an experience, which I'll, I feel like I really told that those those stories in depth initially. So I'll kind of try to zip through this one a little more. Sure. Uh, in 2006, I was camping with a woman, a friend of mine, uh, someone actually who I hardly knew, and we went camping in the mountains near my home when I was living out west as the Tetons, Grand Teton National Park, right up against the edge of Grand Teton National Park. Uh, we uh, so gorgeous, beautiful, big mountain environment, and and. Uh, and so the very first time we went camping, it was just for one night. So, and, and as I said, I hardly knew this person. So the sun was setting, I'm cooking, which is, I'm very comfortable in the back country doing this kind of stuff. So I'm cooking on this big flat rock. We're out in this gorgeous meadow, big mountains all around us. The sun is setting, the full moon is rising, just an amazing scene. And, and as I'm, you know, cooking, we're talking and, she, and her name is Kristen and she says something and it's like, oh my God, this is so like, I didn't, it's like, it just impressed me. Something she said really impressed me. And, uh, and at that moment, an owl flew over and then a second owl and then a third owl. And I was, and we were both just like thunderstruck. These owls flew around for the next, I guess about an hour and a half or so. Uh, so as the sun was setting, as we were eating, these owls were flying around, they're flying, swooping right over us. They're landing on branches they're landing on the ground nearby. Uh, big owls, real owls, you know, normal size. I'm pretty sure they were short-eared owls, which is a pretty big owl. That's be about, you know, a foot tall if they were standing on the ground. Um, and, you know, they were doing owl things and they, you know, they were, but it was just magical. And, and, uh, and we laid down and went to bed. And as we, you know, just, we didn't take a shelter. It was a beautiful night. So we just slept out under the stars and uh, lying in her back, looking straight up at the, you know, high elevation stars at that northern latitude is just spectacular and then then the owls would fly right above your face and just block out the stars for just one second um a couple days later we, or four days later we went camping again different spot uh, almost the exact same thing happens uh, as sun is setting these owls land on, land around us they're landing on branches they're landing on the ground near us and to have it happen once was really cool to have it happen twice actually kind of freaked me out um I didn't understand what was going on and it, it really shook me up and I, and it, and I kind of got all wiggy on owls and started looking up totem animals and mythology and, you know, paid really close attention to any time they showed up in, in, um, UFO literature. And this is, this is coinciding with a chapter of my life, 2006, when I was recognized that these stories, the stories I just told and a few others that I have, really pointed to some sort of UFO contact in my life. So I was, I was kind of, I knew I had to look into this stuff. I was pushing it away. I was denying it. I didn't want to look into it. And when I was seeing those owls, these real owls in this mountain environment, owls landing in a branch, owls standing on the ground close by, the booming thought in my mind was this has something to do with the UFOs. 
And that's an illogical thought, you know, and why would they have anything to do? But that's what I was thinking. And, and I consequently started asking folks, you know, like who've had these experiences, you know, have you ever had any odd experiences with owls? And, and, um, I just started hearing these amazing stories. People would say, it's funny you should ask because no one's ever asked me that before, but here's the story. And I just collected one after another. I started archiving them and I started writing them down. And I started collecting them and keeping files. And then it just snowballed. And I'm, I'm just, um, I, I mean, I, right now I just, I got one this morning, you know? So, um, oh, but there's one more detail here. So, uh, I started the blog in my online blog in 2009. So that was three years after this event with Kristen and the owls in the mountains. And, um, and I wrote it up. I said, you know, she was talking about something really interesting at the moment of, of the, of the, um, the first owl. And I got a hold of her after posting it online. I said, listen, like I just posted this thing online and we, what were you talking about right at that moment? Do you remember right at the moment, very first owl, very first night we were camping? She said, oh, I remember exactly what I was talking about. I was talking about my deepest, most heartfelt definition of what God meant to me. Hmm. And that one detail, I mean, I was already totally flipping out at that point and just pushed me while I was just like that, just added a depth and a weirdness and, a, and, an, and an urgency to this whole thing that um, it just was, you know, just kind of, I don't know, pushed me off a cliff in a way. So, Oh uh, yeah, there was a long answer. So that's how I got started, you know. And, and from that point on, I was asking folks if they've had any odd experiences with owls, and 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 uh, and that's in a way the core of the book. Those stories. What is the concept for people that may not be familiar with the concept of the screen memory of owls and people reporting to seeing like four foot owls and th- these kind of stories? What's what's kind of what's going on there? Well, that let's that harkens back to what I just talked about earlier with the with the um, uh, the movie light in the yard. Yeah. I don't think there was a movie light in the yard. I think that was a that was a projection that was put into my mind to replace what was actually there. I can only assume what might have been there. Um, uh, I never went out and looked in the snow. I was in full state of denial. I wouldn't have bothered. It was ridiculous to go out and look in the snow and think that something might have been out there. Uh, so. You'll hear these stories over and over and over again. You know, like oh, I was driving down the road and I, there was this great big owl in the middle of the road, and I pulled right up to it. It was four foot tall. I could see it right over the hood of my car. This big owl face staring at me, looking right at me, didn't move. You know, and then, which by the way, owls don't get that big. Owls so, do not get that big. You <laughs> yeah. know, and it's you know, so um, uh, I mean, a one foot tall owl is a big owl, right? And a two foot tall owl is extremely rare. Um, now, when they measure owls, you'll see, you know, they're they're from they'll measure them from tip to tail in flight, and they can, you know, the biggest owl in the world can is estimated to be at about thirty three inches. Um, is that the gray owl? That's the great gray owl. Yeah, okay. that's the tallest. There's other ones that are heavier, and there's another one that has a bigger wingspan. But um, that's the tallest. Is the North is a great gray, which is found around the a globe. It's the same bird that shows up in Norway and Russia and, and across, um, you know, that, that, those Northern latitudes. So, um, but, uh, so you hear these stories, you know, I was a four foot tall owl on the road and I pulled right up to it and it was looking at me over the hood. And then I, you know, then I got home and there was like, um, uh, it was like, like I was three hours late, you know? And so yeah, I hear that, I've heard that story so many times. Um, and, 
And, you know, I've actually talked to very few people who've gone through the hypnotic regression process. There's this myth out there that, that, the, that the hypnosis thing has like tainted and spoiled this whole issue. I've talked to almost no one who's gone through hypnosis. I certainly have talked to some, but very few. And um, in often, you know, so what shows up or what, I mean, this is, this would be, you know, this is perfect. It's very tidy. And I, there's some examples of this, but um, not that many where, where the hypnotherapist will say, you know, okay, well, let's look at that owl. And what do you see? And like describe the owl. And it's like, well, it's bald and has big black eyes and it's got a skin tight uniform on. And, and, uh, and <laughs> right. I don't think it's an owl. Um, yeah. but, but what you remember is an owl. Um, there's one story in the book, which I thought was really unusual where, um, a couple were driving at night and they're, they're like, why is that bright light out in this lonely road? Why is this bright light? And they both, they thought it was a street lamp. And the, the, I think it was the, the wife said like, what are those kids doing out here dressed like ghosts? Huh. And the husband said, those aren't that's that's not what it is. That's owls. So they all, they had like two separate screen memories there. In my opinion, I mean that's that's one way to look at it. They had two separate screen memories. Um, they also proposed the man proposed to her that night, which is very interesting. This highly charged emotional moment is somehow is somehow piggybacking on this equally highly charged moment. Uh, so so this is the kind of stuff that I hear. You're like, well, that's really weird. The proposal thing is an, is an odd little detail. She's like, oh, when I talked to her, she's like, oh, I remember exactly the night. That was the night he proposed. Um, so what is this, you know, where do you go with this? So, so with the screen memory, so in the context of the book, I mean, I have to address the screen memory and I got a bunch of stories. I got more screen memory stories than I could fill up 10 books of screen memory stories. And I, and so I, peppered a few good ones in there that I thought. And then I, and then I felt the need to move on because th- there's something even weirder going on than the, the mind control that must be at play for people to see these, these four-foot-tall owls. Now, that said, there's other things in the, in the, uh, the, the lore of the screen memory. Um, deer are very often seen. That's if people say like, oh, like what's, you know, are you going to do a book on deer? And I'm like, oh gosh, I don't know. It's not my direct experience. So I don't really feel a need to do a book on deer. Someone out there should do it though. Because there's all kinds of deer stories too that are equally as powerful. Um, yeah, I and, remember deer and owls are the two that I can remember hearing about in the screen memory that that, that people see the most. Are there any others? Yeah, clowns, um, dead there relatives. There you go, Rob. Oh God. Oh, that's a, that's so funny. There's like this fear of clowns, and I'm like, eh, you know, I, I think I can get. Rob it. has that. He yeah. has the fear of clowns. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, so yeah, so yeah, so they see that you know, short little clown like stopping in the middle of the road. And <laughs> night. So yeah, that. So it's you know, an owl is normal to see. A clown is unlikely to see. So yeah, clowns. Um, well, if I um, saw a clown, like you know, that wouldn't comfort me. If I saw a no. clown in the middle of the road, I'd speed up. I'd ra- I would rather <laughs> see a bunch of like little gray aliens than clowns. I can't I I can't imagine my brain substituting one for that. Yeah, yeah, it's very yeah. Clowns are creepy, no doubt. Yeah. So, um, and then uh, raccoons are very common, as yeah. well as um, Jesus actually shows up a fair amount. You know, people say, yeah, like I was in my bedroom and I opened my eyes and there was Jesus standing in the bedroom. Yeah, that was an interesting one when I read that in your book. That was an interesting one. Have you seen yeah. the movie The Fourth Kind? You know, I watched most of it. I kind of found it so like it just made my toes curl on my shoes. It bothered me so much. Yeah. But yeah, so they so that movie, obviously, what they did is they 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 
whoever the scriptwriters were, it purports to be like a, a true story. It's not. It's a it's a Hollywood gimmick, yeah. and I'm all for that. I'm all for a good gimmick on a low budget movie. Um, uh, but uh, you know, they had obviously the scriptwriters had sat down with some books, and and the owl thing shows up. Like I mean, there's, it shows up in Whitley Strieber's Communion, um, and it shows up in a lot of uh, abduction books. But it, you know, it might only be a paragraph in an, in a big thick book. And, and I believe me, I found most of those references in my research, but, um, so this is, uh, you know, so what, so like, I'm like, you know, the screen memory aspect was very well known, you know, before I even, you know, I, I knew it too. Um, so, uh, but the, the movie, the fourth kind was using owls in the screen memory of owls as a spooky plot point. And they, you know, they had very subtle eerie computer generated sort of morphing between a gray alien and an owl. And I, and I don't think you ever really see the aliens in the movie. So you see these owl eyes and the memories of the, the flashbacks and, and, uh, but, um, yeah, so I don't think there's anything like paranormal. Like they didn't, they didn't sort of tap into them. They didn't manifest anything out of the ether to, to create the owl thing that, came from the literature Scriptwriters were, were, were using real life events to, to write there to, uh, as, as reference within their scripts. You also talk about in the book, this relationship between owls and UFOs and synchronicities. What is the relationship there? What's some of the most interesting stories that you've encountered about that? What's the relationship? I don't know. I mean, that's took me almost 400 pages to tell yeah. the relationship of that. So, yeah. So that's the problem. It's funny. Cause that's like, I wish I had like a, you know, I wish I had like a, you know, what do you call it when you, um, when you pitch something, you know, your little spin, you know, you kind of give it your little pitch and you just kind of, you, so you sum it all up in a minute. Um, I can't do that. And this is a complicated, weird stuff is all colliding together. So, so, um, Synchronicity is a term coined by Carl Jung, and it, and it, 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 and a simplest definition is a meaningful coincidence, a coincidence that is meaningful to the observer, the person who has it, you know, has a meaning. The person standing next to him might mean nothing at all to them, but it, it strikes something in the core of the person having that. Now, this is something that um, I, I wrote an essay a while ago, and someone helped me with it, and and I. <laughs> And I remember I was kind of like thinking aloud, like how I was going to write it. And I told my friend, like, you know, um, you know, people who have the UFO contact experience, they have more synchronicities than the, than the normal person. And my friend, she rolled her eyes and she kind of went, anyone who, who is on a spiritual path will have more synchronicities than the normal person. And she was right. I recognize she was right. So in a way that forced me to think that UFO contact, UFO abduction is a spiritual path. And I've kind of been, as a thought experiment, addressing the power of synchronicity, the power of the UFO experience, and then the power of the owl sighting. I've been addressing these all in the same way. I've been waiting, I'm waiting them, you know, like giving them the same weight and how I treat them and how I reference them. Uh, And it has been really fruitful, this, you know, to do it that way. Because, you know, there are people who have like, oh my God, I saw an owl, it was the most important thing in my life, my life changed, it was this premonition it was this beautiful powerful thing no connection to ufos no connection to synchronicity but they had found it very moving and it had an impact on their lives um the same can be said of ufo events the same can be said of a powerful synchronicity so there's a blurring between all these um you know, so one story which is kind of visual but um 
I think you can look this up on my blog that the there was a husband and wife team. The, the documentary is out now. It's called Time is Art and it's about synchronicity. And there's a uh, a point in the production where the husband and wife team, they were out shooting um, these murals. It was very, it's very artistically done. And there's a lot of references to the creative process. And so they were, you know, it's kind of, kind of wandering narrative and, and there's all this footage of uh, murals in the San Francisco, the mission district of San Francisco. So there's these murals that have um, owls in them and, and flying saucers. And so these people were shooting the murals and so, you know, in the raw footage, there's, you know, like um, Native American rituals with white owls and 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 flying saucers. And, um, and then they set the camera down during this while they're shooting owls on a documentary with a theme of synchronicity. They set the camera down and they didn't realize the camera was still running. And they get about a five second clip of this amazing metallic looking structured object in the sky kind of moving from the clear blue sky to behind a tree. And they didn't know about it until they looked at it and found it in the editing process. Uh, You know, so here's a documentary on synchronicity. They're shooting owls and UFOs and ritual events. They set the camera down and capture a UFO. So there's owl synchronicities and UFOs just all like stepping over each other in this one event. All three of them in the same place. And then I will also say it's very difficult to know, but the, 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 the woman that I talked to, Katie, one of the filmmakers, you know, like it's, I don't want to, she has experiences that imply some sort of abduction event or some sort of contact. It's interesting. She sealed. She says, no, no, that's not what they were. And I got to trust that. So I'll go right up to the line and say, they are the kind of things that someone who's had these contact experiences, they are the kind of stories that they would tell. Um, I don't know what, you know, the core of her real experience was. What she shared is certainly very telling. And then I relay that in the book a little bit. So, Well, you do have this concept in the book of the maybe people. And that would be the perfect thing. Yes. So the maybe people is something, what I was running into was, um, you would talk to these people and they would have these owl events and they'd see these UFOs and the owl, you know, they'd be like, Oh, I was camping and I looked up in this tree and there was an owl. And then the next thing I knew, you flying or a triangle craft, like zoomed over silently. So, um, and then you talk to them and then they would have these other stories that sounded like the kind of things I'm like, well, you know, I bloody noses when I was a kid and I've had these odd kind of paranormal experiences. And, you know, I had these dreams where I was floated out of my bedroom by skinny beings and stuff like that. But I don't think I'm an abductee. And I, you know, it's like, it's not my job to tell who's someone who's an abductee and who's not. I can, I can say that they're, that they're, you know, if I had a million dollars and I could fly around them, you know, or a hundred million dollars, let's say, and, and then, you know, do thorough research on every single one of these people, I might come to a better conclusion. I don't have that kind of money. I don't have that, you know, it's just, that's, that's just not going to happen. So I have to, I have to be cautious on what I say, but my sense is that there's this lesser tier just below that pop culture version that I talked about earlier of the people being taken from their cars late at night. And there's, there's something going on below the waterline that is impacting people who may not have had 
that outright experience. They may ne- they may not have any of the, you know, like they, they have never been on board the craft, never been on the table, you know, those kind of things. But they have some sort of interaction with the with the core of this of this elusive phenomenon that that leaves me that was that just forced me in a way to to invent this this term the maybe people and, and I, I peppered a lot throughout the the book where these folks have who've had experiences that are uh you know imply a lot and often these people will have uh, spiritual awakenings It'd be very very these are seekers these people these are very caring uh deep thinkers the folks that i'm talking about it's almost as if the owls kind of seek them out in a way or around these particular people uh, it gets very blurry yeah which comes here yeah, who's who's seeking who yeah we i mean yeah it gets very difficult to untangle these these questions at a certain point and and i think that maybe in the concept of the of the maybe people that it could be that these people are having completely different experiences. Maybe they're having more ghost experiences or like, uh, you know, Soraya talks about his Kundalini awakening and how some of that felt very similar to what the alien abduction or near death experience. So it could be completely different. Well, in in a sense, a different experience. And I'll add that Soraya has a, he's told me he's got a pine tree in the front of his house where eight owls live. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and one thing else I wanted to ask you too, Mike, was, you know, as you said, like, you know, owls are common, but we never see them because they are nocturnal animals. And if you're, if you're asleep at night or you're inside your house glued to your TV, you're not going to see them most of the time. And you have had a lot of experience with owls, and I wanted to ask you whether it, some of that do you think could be because you are a very outdoors kind of person. You're basically an outdoorsman, really. That well, you do, see them so much because you're more in their habitat. Well, obviously, I'm seeing the places I'm seeing them are places where there are real owls. So it's not yeah. like I'm you know seeing them in some place where they simply wouldn't exist. You know, it's not like I'm on the North Pole or in you know right, like a boat right. or the ocean. Um, but. I will say that I worked with a lot of folks that did similar work that I did um, for an outdoor school. You know, so I had a lot of peers that spent a lot of time in the mountains, just like I was spending a lot of time in the mountains. And I would ask them, hey, have you ever seen any, this, did this ever happen to you, this kind of story? And like, nope, never happened to me. Really? Um, wow. So, so I can, just on that anecdotal evidence there yeah uh, and I can say that it sure seems like I was seeing a lot of owls. I was, it's, it's, it's it's so much lesser now, and and I think that's because I don't need anything proved to me. Like I'm already like I'm already there. Yeah. Like whatever. It's not going to do any. What's what good's it going to do for me to see an owl? You know. Like it's I'm already. You know. I'm already convinced. I already feel a sense of knowing that there's something there. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what's what's at the core of the mystery. I don't know what's behind what's behind the the, the question you know, why owls? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that there's, that there's something there. And, and since coming to that point, the owl things have really lessened for me. You you also do a good job in the book of talking about the mythology behind owls and also owls roles in shamanic experiences as well. Um, what's some of the mythology behind owls? And well, one of the, Oh, here, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to ask you about like David Weatherly, who we've actually had on this show early on. Uh, he had a very profound experience with owls as well. 
Well, his is a great story. In fact, that was one that kind of so a couple so so initially this whole book uh, started out as an as an essay. It was about thirty pages, about thirty five pages long. Now it's about I think it was about 38 pages long. It's 380-page book. So that essay got multiplied by 10, basically. Um, most of that essay is in the is in the um, the core of the book here. There's some parts that are that that didn't you know transfer over. But where was it? Oh, so David, um, you know, David's a shaman. He doesn't talk about this very often. If you ask him, he'll answer you. And and I and I sort of realized that when I was interviewing him on my podcast series. And, and I was like, he said something and he actually said he had a near death experience as a boy. And I was like, you're a shaman. I kind of interrupted him and he's like, yeah, uh, yes I am. And I'm like, he's best known really for the black eyed, well, the black eyed kids book that he put out a few years ago. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Which is a paranormal researcher and ghost researcher right. and that kind of thing. Exactly. So yeah, so he's got the, and which is a great book and is a powerful book and he's, you know, tapped into something that's in, you know, in the, um, you know, so yeah, so, so that's his, that's his. What would you call it? Yeah, that's his. Yeah, when people think of David Weatherly, they think of the Black Eyed Kids book. Right. Um, and he said, "Oh, you know," he said, "I got an owl story for you." And he said, "You know, I was doing this UFO research, and I was, you know, investigating a UFO case, and there was a woman who said she'd been having ongoing contact near her home and in her home, and she was worried her kids were having it too." So David drives to her house, and he's in the truck, and he's got the voice recorder, and he's going to put fresh batteries in. So he's sitting in the driver's seat and he's just pulled up to her house and he's looking down at the voice recorder and putting the batteries in in the driver's seat. And then there's this thud and there's like a, there's like a palpable sense that something oomph like landed on the car and he looks up and standing on the hood, staring at him is a great horned owl. It's owl size, not nothing four foot tall, big, you know, handsome, great gray owl. And they stare at each other for a little bit and the thing looks around and then flies off. Now, uh, when the, when the, when he went in to talk to the folks, you know, they were, she was telling what amounts to like the stuff I feel like we've all heard as far as her, her experiences with, you know, probable UFO contact in the house. But while he's in there that, you know, one of the kids goes, mom, mom, it's back. And, uh, hmm. and then what's back, you know, and then David says, and like, well, she said, well, there's this owl that's been sitting outside the, the kid's window at, and um, and she had two kids. One had seen the owl, and the other hadn't. She had never seen the owl, and she said, "Oh, what the neighbor has been remarking on too." So here we have, here we have a shaman at the site of a house with UFO contact, seeing an owl. Um, and these are this is that is to me is very important. So in some sense, and in some traditions, the the shaman would be the excuse me, the owl would be the totem animal of the shaman, and that's that shows up kind of consistently around the world. The mythology, the core mythology of the owl is is that an, an, an ancient man would have recognized this the same way we recognize this today, is that owls can see into the darkness. They can fly into the darkness. They can see in the dark. Uh, they, the, 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 the metaphor of that becomes the owls can travel into another realm. The darkness is another realm. They can travel beyond the veil and they can come back with, with a message. They could, so they're not just flying into the darkness. They are going there and returning, which is exactly what the shaman does. The shaman goes through a ritual, whether they take mushrooms or meditate or rhythmically dance or, or, um, uh, is, so the shaman is performing that same role. The shaman goes into another realm 
gains information and then comes back and, and shares that information. So, uh, that, that so that's the tie-in with the owl and the in the and the shaman, which which was so fruitful as far as an avenue of of speculation or an avenue of research. Um, that one just was like I, I had to. Ch- I, there's like a big sections of that chapter in the book that never. That I just it was just I was, you know, like it would have been its own book. Um, uh, so I had to I had to really pare that that chapter down. You know, Mike, one of the aspects of alien contact experience that we've talked about on this show has been the similarity between some of the experiences that alien abductees, contactees have and the similarity between those and let's say like the ayahuasca experience, people that take the ayahuasca, um, which is a very shamanic rite in, in a way. And and it's and is um, done by shamans. You know, when you go to do that, you are given it by a shaman, someone that is an expert in the use of it. Uh, do you see that? And I'm sure that you do. But do you see that there is a connection between these experiences and the shamanic experience? Absolutely. Yeah. And then, some point in the book, I say something to the effect of, you know, like you know, when the insurance salesman is taken from his bedroom in Ohio, does he have, you know, what, what's his experience? Does he have a, does he have a shamanic initiation? And, and when the shaman is taken from his mud hut in the jungles of Brazil, you know, what's his experience? Is his experience being taken on board a, a UFO? You know, there's this, there's this blurriness between the shamanic initiation and the, the core um, uh, abduction event. Well, not say that's not the core of it because we have a preconception of what that is, but the kind of the result you know, what, oh, is the same. The result the is, a, is a transformation right. of of this of the consciousness somehow. And I and I I cannot tell you. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm um you know like I'm putting a certain energy out there and I'm getting it reflected back. You know, so the people who contact me are kind of well suited to contact me in a way because I'm they're choosing me to contact. So you know the, the folks I'm talking to, man, I, I very often I'll just like either write down a handful of things on the piece of paper when I talk to folks on the phone, and one of them is like Reiki. I just write Reiki, and at some point I'll say, "So what are you doing these days for work?" And they're like, "Oh, I'm a Reiki therapist." And I like to check that off, and and um, it's not a hundred percent, but man, there are a lot of Reiki therapists out there who 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 are or a lot of you know contactees out there that are reiki therapists and and yeah we've so actually that, had one on the show um uh, michael carter who's been a guest on this show he is uh he's a contactee uh, he's a contactee as well has had those experiences and he's a he, unitarian minister and he does reiki and interesting that, that you mentioned that so i mean you know whatever how to say this you know like a shaman has kind of a a, a set definition uh, you know, Reiki therapy is a form, in my opinion, simplistic, I guess a simplistic opinion would be the Reiki therapy is a form of shamanic work. You know, it doesn't necessarily is being practiced by a shaman, you know, that, that has that the title that, that, that actually has a, maybe a different meaning, but I, you know, that when, if someone, I just, so my sense is that, that the, 
you know, one way to look at it is that the UFO occupants are kind of, you know, flying around their flying saucers, looking down at us through their view screens and going like, wow, these people are like shit out of luck. You know, there's this, their planets, you know, so, you know, spiraling the drain, you know, so let's, uh, you know, instead of contacting the president and telling him how to make a, you know, a, uh, you know, a better nuclear bomb or whatever, uh, they are, they're contacting these individuals all over the place. And, and, and that in the result of that contact experience is this shamanic type of work. Um, and Reiki is just one example. I mean, hypnotherapists and, and people who work with animals and, and, uh, I mean, there's this, this odd pattern of this sort of like this need to help people in this compassion that, that arises out of this. I mean, there's other jobs out there that have those, but, um, so did the UFO contact experience create these these Reiki therapists or these, you know, these people in a shaman-like practice, uh, you can speculate that and think about that. And it's very fruitful in the sense that it, it produces like a, a, you know, like a, you know, that, that it plays out very cleanly in the, in, uh, in the speculation. Sure. It, 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 for me, all this, just the weight of evidence for me on this whole experience I just more and more and more <laughs> as if I ever needed any more evidence, but I don't think that we are dealing with beings from Zeta Reticuli, scientists that just want to come here and study us and take our sperm. I, I think that there is so much more going on and something so much more profound and something that perhaps has been going on for since humans have been on this planet. Yeah, you know, that's you find owls carved into the wall of caves, you know. So what? Right. Are, what is that like a clue? You know, like I mean, obviously they're beautiful birds, and I mean that anyone would recognize that, and they'd want to. But you know, like how? What do we read into this? You know. So yeah, and and so yeah, so so I agree that that something far more complex is going on, far more subtle is going on than little scientists in a metal spaceship coming to coming to. I mean, that's what we do, right? That's, you're just, you're just, <laughs> yeah. that's what we, you know, we get on a helicopter and fly into Yellowstone National Park and then, and then dart the bears and, and, uh, uh, blindfold them. And, you know, actually I talked to a bear biologist who does this and does this in, in Yellowstone and they say they blindfold them. What do you blindfold them for? And he said, well, the, the, the drugs we give them, you know, they, they still can see and they still can, they're conscious, but they're, and I'm like, oh my God, that's exactly what people say. They say like, I'm lying there on the, I can't move. My eyes are open. I can totally conscious. And that's exactly what's happening to the bears. So the bear biologist in Yellowstone puts a little blindfold on the grizzly bear. And then they also, this is something I talked to, you know, this, this biologist. And he was like, you know, at some point in this conversation, he's like, you know, we like, well, we love the bears. We love the bears. We care deeply about these bears here. And, and the work we're doing is coming from that place of compassion. And I'm like, Oh, whoa, 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 back up. Say that one more time. And I was like, and so, so the, the, you know, if how much of this analogy, like, I want that to be true. Like, I want that to be that to play over i want to think i want you know i don't know if it's true or not but i'll you know i think it's a it helps me (laughs) sleep at night if i (laughs) if i frame it in the way that these that these ufo occupants are just as loving and caring and in doing this for for the same compassionate reasons that the bear biologists are trying to help the bears in yellowstone maybe there's a couple of bears like talking to each other right now and one saying 
well, I think there's something more going on than just, you know, the helicopter and we're getting shot by darts and, you know, there's something more profound going on. I don't know. <laughs> well, there is something more profound going on because these, these bear biologists recognize that these, that the bear, the grizzly bears look like threatened animal. Like it's, it's yeah. their, their habitat is very small and they're, they're in danger of extinction. So yes, yeah, so there is most something more profound going on, you know, but I, but at the same time, you know, like, I don't think the, the, um, I mean, it's all speculation. What are the bears going to say? Like, where do this, where do they go? The people on the helicopter, these, the, you know, where do they go when they get off the helicopter and the helicopter flies away, you know? And, um, you know, they have no idea that, that people are, you know, sitting around drinking beer and watching TV at night that wouldn't even fit into the bear's brain, you know? So. <laughs> exactly. Another fascinating thing, and this has been an aspect that's come up on our show, has been it, the link between owls and the occult. And you have, you know, like you, you even talk about it in the book, Bohemian Grove, you know, this big statue of an owl. Uh, there's, there's even a cult that I know of. I think they're actually in upstate New York that they have this golden owl that they kind of venerate. I have to kind of look all that up, but, but it's there. And the, the owl is a, is a huge occult symbol. If you believe some of the things they talk about with uh, Washington, D.C., that the layout of from the Capitol to the White House or from the Capitol to the uh, the Long Washington Rome. Monument yeah. is, a, is a big owl. You can actually see that that shape there. So there's the, those, there's all this kind of occult significance with it. And I just always found that fascinating that then you have the screen memory of alien abduction. I'm like, there has to be a link to that. Somewhere there, there has to be a link. And I think your work has put somewhat of a link to that in a way. Well, so my my premise is that the, you know, like, you tra- go back to Athens and in, in the Greek gods. Um, right. uh, uh, Athena was the Greek goddess of wisdom. She was also the goddess of war and the goddess of arts and crafts too. So that's like, you know, like basket weaving and, and making a nice blanket, you know, she's, so we don't, we don't recognize that anymore. It's not quite we, as mighty as war. Yeah. As know. mathematics and, you know, and, and, uh, but you know, war and wisdom are kind of, you know, they're right up there <laughs> in commerce too. So there's, there's yeah. the Washington DC right there. War wisdom or, you know, like lack of wisdom, I guess, in some things, but, um, you know, war and commerce, that's, that's Athena. So, um, and, and if these, the guys who, planned, you know, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and the guys who, you know, planned this utopian America that was this ideal, you know, they, they're educated in the classics. They would want to sneak this owl imagery. They were perfectly aware what that meant in the, in the, you know, in just the simplest, you know, mythology, you know, you don't have to dig too deep that, you know, Athena and the owl, um, so, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say, ooh, that's a conspiracy that they put the owl there. And like, well, that's not really a conspiracy. That's like, you know, is it a conspiracy that, you know, that like the, I don't know, that it's an owl on the elementary school uh, the blackboard with a little, with a little graduation camp that, yeah. you know, that when it comes time for kindergartners to leave kindergarten and go to first grade, they have a little cartoon owl, you know, and that's just a Are they like of, the, uh, the Tootsie roll, the Tootsie pop commercials. Yeah. The t- well, that was the yeah. wise owl. They went to right. the owl and asked, you know, like how many licks does it take to get the Tootsie roll center of a Tootsie pop, you know? And, and the, you know, the owl, that's what they would ask. And that was the owl had the, that was the wise owl and it was, you know, so, uh, 
yes, that's that's like they couldn't get the simplistic Tootsie Roll commercial as you know they got the same mythology as as the layout of you know Washington D.C. in some sense. So, um, so yeah, I'm very cautious to and it's and I just and I say it in the book like oh my gosh the like that trying to research Bohemian Grove on the internet is crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like it's right. It's a bottomless pit of like you know like whatever. You, some people are saying, oh, it's just this elite thing, and they meet there once a year, and they you usually you just know, they, get Alex Jones screaming at you. That's usually what you get. Yeah, or like you know they're drinking the blood of like you know baby sacrifices and stuff like uh-huh. that. So I don't know. I think it's a you know I don't know where the real story is, um, but um, I feel strongly that there is a real giant owl um actually for some sense it's made of cement i'm not sure if what's made out of but some some reports say it's actually a big cement owl that's been cast or you know sculpted there rather than a big naturally occurring rock yeah we, our guest that we had on right before you robert w sullivan he actually explained that as so because some people say that that's molek uh that's the alex jones explanation but he says that that's to represent minerva because minerva or Athena is on the California state seal. That was his explanation of it. Well, and Minerva used to be on the, or, or Athena used to be on the back of the quarter too. You know, yeah. it was a, and, uh, and Minerva was on the back of the five, you know, the, the most widely minted coin in, in the ancient Greece, which was the five drachma coin. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, it was an, that was an owl on one side in a, in a, uh, Minerva, excuse me, and, and Athena on the other. And, um, and that's where we get even from, so this, like the, oh, that's where we get heads and tails. So that's, yeah, you know, that was fascinating. Yeah. So that's, that came right from that coin with an owl on it. So we're basically using the same thing. It's interesting. The coin, since they redid everything, the quarter doesn't have an eagle on the back anymore. So <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, you, you know, one thing I found fascinating was, um, John Carradine, the actor. Mm-hmm. You're familiar with Jack Parsons, I'm sure, the occultist. Yep. Uh, he would narrate Parsons' rituals that he did the OTO in California. Like he would sh- show up there with like a little script and like, yeah, yeah, because he had that that deep booming oh, yeah. voice, you know. And so he would actually narrate narrate these things. And I've always found it fascinating. Here's a synchronicity for you that one of the my favorite cartoon movies growing up was the movie The Secret of Nim. And Carradine actually voiced the he actually voiced the great owl in the movie. I was gonna say, like, oh my gosh, because they did that owl scene, yeah. So yeah, yeah so believe me, every th- I get people like send me stuff all the time. Like, oh my god, here's this owl that shows up here. And and I I make a big effort to like, you know, tap into this stuff. Yeah. So they're big spooky owl and big and there's John Carradine's voice. Yeah. And, and very interesting too. There's a uh, Cheekwood Mansion here in Nashville. Uh, there is uh, a lot of statues outside when you walk in because it's an art museum. And the first thing that we saw when we got in there, because we went there to check it out one day, was this little stone statue of an owl just sitting there. And that's why we were just like the, the whole time we we're just like, what is going on with owls? What is up with owls? Well, so and owls everything. Are, <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of you got to be careful because I mean, yeah. you, just, you see a little kid with an owl lunchbox, and it doesn't, you know, like, oh my gosh, like, what does it mean? What's the secret symbolism? <laughs> you know, like the owls are kind of popular, you know. So, yeah. uh, I you have, know, there's like I have noticed that in your book, a lot of the experiencers are women, and I've noticed that owls are a very f- popular fashion thing with women now. 
You know, I don't know if they're more powerful now or more popular now. They might be. I mean, I mean, they've been around. I mean, there's like reference, you know, from like, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine there's, maybe they are little owl patterns on, on, you know, sweaters or something like that. But yeah. so the, the, the woman, so the owl is a very feminine. So this, so the two core go back to, to Egypt and, and, and Greece. So that, so the two icons of day and night, it's the eagle, bright sunshine, day, Zeus masculine right you know power eagle that's you know march into war you got the standard that they would march into war it was an eagle mm. you know um at night you know owl the moon it's feminine the moon has a 28 day cycle uh, women have a 28 day cycle so the moon and an owl and the feminine are all connected it's much more subtle energy than the sort of masculine bravado of the of the eagle, uh, and then um, and then you know, so I, I did get a lot of women contacting me, and I still do. And my sense is that so my sense is that men are having just as many experiences as women are, but women are much different at communicating. They they want to share, they want to talk, they want to. Men are very stoic and you know want to just shut up and deny, um, or. You know, that's these are very simplistic caricatures I'm, I'm pointing out here. But yeah, so the very interesting, I, I was very struck by how many women were were um, sharing their owl stories. Yeah, and, and like I said, it's become it's it's like a huge thing with women now, uh, like fashion wise. Like my wife has this little, it's this little candle that's in the shape of an owl in my house, and I, I looked at it and I'm like, where did this come from? <laughs> <laughs> oh my! You should see my house at this point. Oh God, it's just it's out of hand. I'm yeah, sure so. it's littered with nothing but uh, owls. I just, you know, my yeah, people are like, oh here, like I knew you were coming. So like, uh, like here's I got an owl. I got a lot of owl coffee cups. You know, so. Um, but, so yeah, so they're out there. But I mean, that's like saying dogs. You know, like oh my God, kittens. You know, like if I, you know, like oh my God, kittens. Have uh, you seen like kittens? What does it mean? There's a kitten. I saw this YouTube video of these cute kittens. What does it mean? You know, so you have to be you have to be a little bit careful. Well, cats have kind of taken over the internet anyway, so. Uh, <laughs> have you ever run across in your research, have you ever run across, uh, any link to the goddess Hecate? You know, I have a little bit, there's an author and I don't actually even know the goddess Hecate, who Hecate actually is, but there's a, there's a, uh, author, um, Walter Bosley. Oh, we've had Walter on the show. Yeah. Yeah. So he references Hecate a lot. Yeah. And he actually read the book. He read the messengers and I've read a couple of his books and I feel bad that he's just cranks them out. Oh my God. He's writing books faster than I can read them. So, um, but yeah, he's a, he's an interesting guy and he's like, it's hard, like his point of view and the way he comes at stuff is like sideways compared to anyone else that, that like, you know, so, so, you know, it's oftentimes I'm wondering like, am I re reading a, like a real investigation or am I reading just the stuff that manifests around Walter Bosley? You know, like, I mean, I think synchronicities can manifest around people and like this, you know, yeah. people can, can, can pour energy and an intention into something and then they'll get results. Stuff will reflect back at them. So, um, yeah, so he's a very, yeah, very interesting guy. And I think that's, so he, he references Hecate a lot. Yeah, he does. And it, she's normally associated with dogs, but she does have these little, they're like, they're like two little owls that, that hang out with her. And they're like, they're little creatures that do her bidding as well. So I've noticed that she's, she's, she's also another one that is associated with owls as well. 
Interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. It's okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the 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 scientific name stri- Strigidae or Strix Strix S T R I comes from those creatures that would that were Hecate's, uh, I guess, familiars. Well, that Strix is. Uh, I'm trying to do this from memory here now, and people can, you know, I, I'm probably going to get this a little wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Strix is Latin for screech. Yeah. And that would be the screech owl. So there's Strix. There's two families of owl, uh, Strix and Boo Boo. And Boo Boo is what they called the the, the owl in uh, Clash uh, of the Titans. Is, <laughs> Clash of yeah. the Titans, which is yeah. like, was Latin for owl or a kind of owl. Yeah. And um, so uh, and that really bothered me in the Clash of the Titans because the, the, they had a scene with uh, um, Lawrence Olivier was playing Zeus, and there was this you know beautiful British actress, and she was playing. Uh, Athena, and she had this owl on her shoulder, and it was a it was a barn owl, and that's not the owl. Barn owls are very easy to train. It's my understanding. So barn owls make great, you know, owls for a movie. Right. They, so they used it, yeah. And it was like, but in the in the literature, it was a little owl, which is actually the the the, the Latin. Well, excuse me, that's actually the the name of uh, of the owl that was. We used to roost in the uh, Parthenon, the the Temple of Athena, and Little Owl. The, the Latin name is uh, Athena Nocturus or Nocturus, which I think I'm probably butchering that a little bit. But it, you know, Athena Nocturus, which is mean night, which is the you know the owl of the night or the owl of Athens. So, um, hmm. but anyway, so yeah, so a little little kind of it bugged me when I was like, oh, they, they missed out. They didn't, you know. So, but uh, where we would go, we got to Boo Boo and, um, oh, Strix. Yeah, Strix is, is, uh, is uh, I think is Latin for screech, which is a, a whole species or a genus of owl, I think is a family. I'm, now, I'm, now I'm lost as far as trying to do this. I'm going back to my junior high school uh, biology class here. But yeah, so there's a, the screech owl is very common all around the world. And that's that's the what they're called, Strix, when you look in the, in the uh, bird book. There's also reference to um, to them in the Bible as well. Um, I think in the book of Isaiah, it talks about uh, in a very negative connotation. It talks about the 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 realm of the screech owl. You know, and and I went through that and I looked at all these references and every single one of them. It was just like shockingly easy to do within the age of the internet. You just type owl, you know, the Bible, and there's like between twelve and seventeen references that come up depending on who, how what the uh, uh, I think I got that right, depending on the uh, uh, translation. So, you know, this, and, and you read them, and, you know, the owl is used in the Bible exactly the same the way it's used in haunted house movies now, right? So it's like, ooh, it's going to walk up to the haunted house, and it's like creepy, and it's dark, and there's fog, and yeah. you the owl hooting, you know? Or maybe there's an owl on the branch, you know, next to the full moon, and it's a little close-up of that for a moment in the movie. You know, so it's, a, it's like a little uh, set piece. And my sense is that's what the owls were used in the Bible. It was just the set piece for something dreary and spooky and dismal um, because they were always talking about these barren lands where, the, you know, they would go off in the, uh, you know, these, these places of and – and, and the night must have had a different meaning in the time before the electric light. Sure. And yeah. I think too, in that there was a lot of reference. I think in uh, in that book, I think there's a lot of reference to Babylon too, and some of their gods as well. Uh, I wanted to ask you 
to the time that we have left about the, the concept of owls also is being associated with death. I think in a lot of Native American lore that they are often associated with uh, death and dying. And, and you actually have some stories, one I think from your own experience, and then uh, a couple of other stories in there just kind of relating to uh, when people have passed on and then people seeing owls direct, directly almost after. Yeah, or at the same moment. I mean, literally, like, you know, I have one story that's not in the book. This woman told me it. Um, and uh, her father was dying and her mother had already died. So the, the, she was a widower and the family was around the bed and it was summertime and the windows were open and there was there was hospice care at home and they knew he was going to pass. So the whole family was there. And, and um, in the final hours as he was at night as he was dying and they all knew it was going to happen. There was an owl hooting out the window. And after he passed, after he died, almost immediately, there were two owls hooting outside and everyone in the family had the same thought. Well, that was mom waiting for dad outside. She was hooting. That was mom out there. Dad died and joined her. We heard it. We all heard it. They all had the same they all had the same reaction. And that is something that shows up where people will tell of, you know, almost uh, most of these stories are, are children whose parents have died. And uh, they'll, uh, they'll see an owl after the death and they'll, the, they'll talk to the owl as if it's their parent. They'll talk to the owl as if it's their, their deceased loved one. These are very, very straight-laced, non-New Age folks, and they'll all have that same reaction. It's not 100%, but this is the, I've, I've collected a number of stories that that uh, that that um, where that plays out. And I, yeah, it's so, it gets so weird. Yeah, so I was, I was having a minor outpatient surgery, little thing. So I'm there, and and uh, you know they gave me. Um, I didn't go under anesthesia or anything like that. They just gave me a Valium, so I got real talkative, you know. And and I'm and uh, the uh, the doctor's like, so, well, you know, what are you working on? Well, I'm working on this thing about owls. And I'm like, oh, God, I can't go into the UFO thing. So I'll just talk about the death thing. It's like, oh, what happens? It's like, oh, well, when people see owls, you know, they, they'll tell that, that they'll, they'll talk about the fact that they, they will be talking to their dead relative when they see an owl. They'll talk to the owl as if it's their dead relative, just exactly what I shared momentarily or just a moment ago. The, um, and, you know, so the thing, the procedure is done and, and, uh, I say goodbye and, and, uh, walk out of there and she had never heard any of this before. She was kind of nodding very politely. Uh-huh. 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 And then I, um, uh, she gets a hold of me later and said, you know, right after you left the, the receptionist who wasn't in the room, wasn't nearby. We didn't share anything with the receptionist. The receptionist said, um, just out of the blue, like, oh, you know, you know, there was an owl on my porch last night. And my dog had just died. So I went out and I talked to the owl and I, and I called it, you know, Fluffy and said, oh, Fluffy, I miss you. And you were the best dog ever. And thanks so much for coming back. And, and I just, I just miss you terribly. And now I know you're safe. And the owl flies off. And, you know, so, so, you know, how do, I mean, that story shows up in the book and, and I, and I, all I can do is catalog these stories and let the reader come to the conclusion 
whatever conclusion they come to, I kind of lead them a little bit. But my sense is that there's something, some power in the owl that we tap into, that we know on an intuitive level. No one has to explain that the owl is, you know, the, because it's obviously a real owl. It's not the incarnation of someone's dead relative. Right. But that's that's how people react. And I'm, I suspect that's how people reacted, you know, 10,000 years ago. I wonder if it could have something to do with the fact that unlike most birds, that there might be almost a human-like quality to them. Maybe well, with I, the eyes, the, their eyes are full frontal. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, very much. Of, very, owls are very intense. Owls have a ton of in, I mean, intensity to them, you, you know, that owl. So here's an interesting thing about owls that, that, uh, so, you know, we as humans, our eyeballs are round, right? So we can move our, we can look straight, you know, our nose is pointed straight, but we can still look right and left. An owl right. can't do that, right? So their beak is pointed straight. And then to look right and left, they have to turn their whole head They're They don't have round eyeballs. Their eyeballs are like almost like a, a locked in place. They're kind of mushroom shaped and they're locked in place. So they cannot turn their eyeballs right and left, which is what's that movie. There was a computer generated movie with these owls. Um, the same guy who directed uh, um, the Watchmen directed it. I can't remember the name of it. Kind of a kid's movie. Oh, Zack Snyder would be the guy. Yeah, yeah, Watchmen, yeah. So yeah. Uh, the guardians of something or other. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it totally bugged me because the owls, they all looking right and left and their eyeballs are moving around their head. It made me crazy when I watched <laughs> that movie. So, um, so yeah, so owls can't do that. So they have a weird, eerie stare because they their eyeballs are locked in that kind of look of astonishment almost. And contrary to popular belief, they actually can't turn their heads completely around. They cannot, yeah. They can yeah. turn them almost completely around, but they can, I mean, they can turn it much farther than we can, yeah. Right. So I just I just wonder if there's something psychological there because it's almost like you you wouldn't get that with any other with any other type of bird at least. Um now I've I have heard certain things like uh deceased loved ones sometimes people will see cardinals and it will remind them of deceased loved ones. I have that in my own experience. Well, but actually but actually talking to it is I think is a different there's a different aspect there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the morning dove showed up when my father died and I talked to that morning dove and I, I walked right up to it. It was, and I was, I was at the funeral. I was at the funeral home with my dad inside, you know, so this is, and, and I walked right up to this morning dove and I, and it didn't fly away. Sat there. I got right up close to it. And I said, listen, I, I recognize fully the metaphor of mourning, you know? So, right. um, so your, your message is very clear. And I was, you know, like I was talking straight to dad when I said that. And it wasn't, you know, like I, at that point, I mean, it, this, I'd already been completely like immersed in this kind of research. So I kind of knew what I was doing in that sense, like having heard other stories similar to that. One thing physically about owls that I found, I actually learned from your book, I didn't know this, was like, they're mostly all feathers. Like if you actually look at the way an owl looks inside the feathers, they they almost look like a little chicken. Well, more there. like a vulture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty. I thought that was I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, they're they're that big barrel shape. You know, that big bulky neck and that big squared off head, and it's not what they're shaped like underneath there. So, yeah. when you hold an owl, they're very light. 
you know, you think you're going to be holding this big, heavy thing, you know, but right. it's very, very light and there's an illusion of being it being big. And all that, that thick coat of feathers is simply designed to muffle their audio in flight so they fly silently. Yeah, they are superb hunters, that's for sure. They really are. Uh, how is the, what's the reaction been so far to the book? And then just the general reaction, when you approach someone or you talk to someone about this stuff, how do people react or do they act generally positively? Do they look like at you like you're crazy? I mean, how does, do people react to this? Well, so it's funny when I was working on the book, I would, you know, I was very, I would size people up really. I've gotten kind of good at that. You know, like, yeah. I'm like, so what are you working on? I'm like, I'm working on a book. Oh, that's interesting. A book. What are you writing about? Oh, I'm writing about owls. Oh, really? That's interesting. Well, what about, what about owls? And then I had to like, right at that moment, like, like, I go with this and I've, most often just to avoid the, you know, whatever, like the six hour conversation, if you turn it to UFOs, I was like, oh, it's owl mythology. It's a book about owl mythology, which is true. And then I would, you know, tell some owl stories and then, you know, to kind of test the waters and then just drop the little UFO thing. And um, so people's reaction has been, you know, the, like, I mean, you've probably confronted this where if you talk to someone and, you know, bring up UFOs or you can just watch them visibly cringe and start to back away or you watch them kind of like go hmm very interesting i have a you know there's two there's you're gonna get two separate reactions and so you just have to kind of follow that and trust that and or they start so, talking about the anunnaki and Giorgio sukulos and i roll my eyes that's the other <laughs> well yeah yeah and well i mean it's interesting because i've watched a hand five actually I, that show drives me crazy but um um everyone i've seen a couple good episodes you know, so it's hard for me to like just you know and I think they, it's pretty exploitative. And I think that they, the editors play fast and loose with the facts. You know, I think that the, the people they're interviewing are, are probably holding their own and, and saying it, you know, like it is the best that they can. And then the editors chop that to pieces. But oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, oh, so, so, uh, the back to the, um, people's reaction, you know, it has been, oh, like just on straight, uh, uh, you know, the, the reviews I got on, on Amazon. Um, there's a handful that are totally like, oh, this book's stupid. One star, dumb. I don't get it. And then there are people who are just like five stars. Oh my God, this, this book talked to me. And my sense is that those people have had all experiences or they've had experiences that are similar. You know, I get a lot of calls from people like, oh, I read your book. I loved your book, but I don't have all experiences. I have raven experiences. And then they'll like, and then there's other people. So, so there's, there's like kind of a, uh, I think I'm like unwittingly tapped into something. People have been wildly enthusiastic about it. And and what has happened is um, I had been getting a lot of like working on the book and having the blog and stuff like that. I've been getting a lot of owl stories and people sending me their owl stories. Now that the book is out, I can't keep up. It's off the charts. Yeah, I bet. You know, I bet. I, it's like, you know how to say it. You know, like I. Do you know who Miriam Delicato is? Uh, the name sounds familiar. She's a. She's had UFO contact experiences. Interesting woman, but she's. You know, she's kind of in a moment of exasperation. She said, "People want proof. People want proof. This stuff is real. Come look at my email inbox. That's all the proof you need." Um, and it's true in a way. Like, like I'm like, like I don't need a like a like a like a lie detector tests, right? Because all I'm getting is the same story over and over and over again. No, they all can't be lying, right? And everyone's not lying. So so there's just the same story showing up of just exactly what we've been talking about or the same, you know, theme within these stories. Um so my 
my uh yeah the book has been uh really well received um i've gotten some you know very complimentary things from people I, I really respect. Uh, Whitley Strieber was very, very generous in the, the oh, stuff yeah. he, he said about it. And Nick Redfern also. And Richard Dolan is your publisher. And Richard Dolan's on fire. So, this book. Yeah. yeah, I kind of, it's almost like I kind of like, I'm a little like, you know, I don't, he's my, he's my biggest, my biggest fan in a way. And I have to, I'm a little embarrassed sometimes like Rich, like chill out, you know, like you're embarrassing me, you know? <laughs> so. Rob, was there anything that you wanted to ask? Uh, yeah. A couple of things actually. Um, one one uh, one thing that I've always sort of been into that has a lot of owls owl connections and stuff to it that you didn't really talk about, and it, it sort of relates to the the um, people seeing the four foot tall owls and the things that are definitely aren't owl real owls. You know, is the uh, the whole Mothman thing. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I touched on Mothman a little bit in the book. Yeah, so it's in the index. You can look it up, and I re- I reference that the Mothman type events are are. Right, there's more yeah, than one. There's other there's other stories that have some very yeah, and there's an owl man set of events that that took place in England, and I cover that in a short subchapter, and and that was very interesting because, um, yeah, it's just like it's, it's, I mean, that's this bottomless pit of of weird stuff where the owl man event uh, started in the mid seventies in uh, in Cornwall, England, all centered around this church, and um. And then in the 1990s, I think it was Nick Redfern found a report and spoke to this woman about her experience. And I referenced this in the book um, where she was leaving the town where this church was in Cornwall, England. And on the drive out, all of a sudden there's a bright light and she's got a momentary lapse of time and she wakes up in a car and she's kind of coming back to, and she realizes it's been like two hours of missing time. And she looks out of her windshield and there's, um, a giant hovering, you know, whatever this, this human like figure of the owl man, which for all intent and purpose is the moth man. Uh, It just seems to have gotten a different moniker there. Um, so this weird, like, you know, apparition since it's like, not, it's like even the people who see it, you know, kind of report this thing. It's like, well, it's almost like it's wearing trousers, but it's not really pants. It's something weirder than that. And, and it's got these pinchers for feet and, and stuff. So it feels like this kind of hodgepodge of, of, of like, you know, like someone, I don't know. It's, it's that, that, it's, that one really, that one really felt weird to me, that one. And then, and then, uh, and all of the people explained the same thing, this sense of dread that's associated with it. So this one woman has a case where it has both the uh, owl man and a UFO and missing time event. Um, so we have an example of, you know, this owl thing that, that should be, in the realm of folklore and ghost story, you know, overlapping with UFO experience. You also have skeptics that will debunk UFO cases as being owls, which is interesting all in of itself. (laughs) Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a chapter I think where I call it owls and UFOs get mixed up, you know? So there's people saying that the, um, Oh, the Braxton County monster was a, was a was a, just a great gray owl, which I find hard to believe. People are very; it's very easy to know an owl when you see an owl, and and and, um, and not mistake it for a you know floating alien. Yeah, I think the Flatwoods uh, monster was said to have been an owl too. I think. 
A lot of Jersey Devil yeah. stuff gets written off as owls. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What else did you want to ask, Rob? Uh, no, I think it was it. Yeah. So those that they show up in the book, and that I mean, but there's this back to this overlapping thing where even the debunkers are like, you know, clinging to the owl thing. So the owl thing seems to have, you know, is is somehow you know velcroed on to the to the to the UFO to the core UFO phenomenon. It's my sense is that it's like if there was a you know an axle on the wheel, and then the the you know that we're seeing these events that take place out at the edge of the spokes, right? We're seeing UFOs, we're seeing um, Owlman, we're seeing Mothman, we're seeing, you know, uh, four-foot-tall owls. What is at the center of that? You know, what's, where is this all emerging from? What's the source? And that's the mystery to me. Right. And and it's, do you feel like it's, it's, it's still, is it a bigger mystery to you now that you've actually, studied this, gotten these stories, written this book. Oh, I'm completely, I'm completely, it's, this is like a thousand times more baffling. Than <laughs> I thought I was just going to like, Hey, I'll just sell them, you know, I'm hot shit. I'm going to sit down and type up a little, uh, you know, a little report. It'll be a little magazine length thing and just kind of like solve this and, you know, tie it up in a nice bow and I'll be done with it and I can move on. And it's just the opposite. It's just like, it's just become even more interesting and even more like seductive in its, in its power. Oh, there's a great story, which is, which I was not in the book and it came to me after the book was published and, um, it happened in Pennsylvania and I think it was cataloged by, oh, what's the guy who's Stan Gordon. Um, so people are driving at night and there's something crossing the road. I think I've got this right. And it's and they're kind of freaked out a little bit and there's like, seems kind of eerie, but it's not really like a, like a true, um, Bigfoot type thing, but it has kind of Bigfoot qualities and it and it but it's a little more hunched over but a little less and not as hairy but um you know almost like a demon and then it like i think it leaps over a wall or something like that so so there these witnesses are seeing this thing and as they're looking at it right after it leaps over the wall bam an owl flies into their windshield they're parked watching this so like yeah so this is that's the kind of like what do you make of that you know, yeah, that's, why would that, that's, you know, what's the, what's the, the lore of the owl is that it's, you know, the set piece of a haunted house movie, you know? So here it is like just playing that role. And Mike, uh, we're about out of time, but for everybody, uh, the book is called the messengers, owl synchronicity and the UFO abductee. And where can people get the book? Uh, easy and to what, find. And what's next for you? Well, well. The, so so the book is easy to find. I'll I'll do that one first. Um, just Google. Um, you can get on the messengers in my name, or the messengers and owls. It'll come right up. Messengers owls book. It'll come right up, and then um, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on CreateSpace. Uh, you can order it through your local bookstore, and which is what I would recommend and save the shipping cost and support your local bookstore. Um, uh, next for me on my uh, computer right now is. A follow-up book. What happened when I did The Messengers? The Messengers is a big, fat book. It's fatter than it should be. Like, I'm a little bit embarrassed. Like, I shouldn't have written a 400-page book. I should have, like, summed it up a little more succinctly. But that just, like, just grew and grew and grew. And when Rich read the whole thing, he was like, no, no, that's fine. No one's ever covered this before. Let's cover it fully. Let's really do it. And I'm right. uh, like, so it's a big, thick book. So it might be a little intimidating for folks to pick up. But um, what I ended up doing, even, like, I had to leave a lot out. And there's these long, complicated 
spiraling stories that are just amazing that I couldn't put in the book because you know, whatever, it would have been a 600-page book if I did that. So so those kind of got left to the side, and I'm just, I'm just reworking those right now. And then hopefully within the next few months, there'll be a companion book out and the working title is stories from the messengers and uh and it'll you know it, it'll be meant to be you know purchased almost side by side and on your bookshelf side by side you know so that and it'll read i think it'll read like a book of short stories i'd love to have you on uh, when you get that because we could go through some of those stories that'd be great yeah yeah i'm immersed in them right now yeah they're they're just stuff weird stuff and by the way, I wanted to give you one guess as to what my high school mascot was. Okay. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> I was going to suspect it had has great big eyes. So. It does. Yeah. <laughs> it was an owl. <laughs> and I mean, that's like, it's hard to read too much into that, you know, like, I don't yeah. know, I don't know what to think, you know, but at the same time, I think that these clues, the, I think that like the universe likes to organize itself with these clues kind of embedded into things, so... I believe so, Mike. Well, thank you so much. Uh, stay on the line for us. We are going to close this section out, but we'll be back to do the, for the outro on Conspiracy Normal. Man, I'm still eating a combo. I know. Sorry. I keep. Well, that's like three episodes in a row I've caught you eating. <laughs> yeah, no, man. I get hungry here. It's all this beer it makes me hungry. But we don't. We don't. We don't drink on the show. You no, know, we don't, no, we don't. We don't do that kind of thing. So, what did you think, man? About Mike Cullen. That was a fascinating interview. Oh, it was great. I, I love the subject and Mike is awesome. There's, there's a lot of, <clears throat> there's was, there was so many little things that, that lend credence to his story. You know, like his, uh, he's a little tentative to discuss his experiences and he, he's got this like childhood friend, not a friend, but acquaintance or whatever that had similar experiences that he keeps meaning to contact and get, yeah, you know, get their story and kind of tie it into everything. But he hasn't done that because I think it's too, a little too personal. Right. And that's all, all that kind of, it, it comes together just to, just to lend a little credence to his story. Yeah. I, I think as far as anything that might've happened to him, I think he's kind of come to peace with it as well. <clears throat> um, <throat> you were talking about, uh, you had some, you had an owl story for me. Yeah, well, uh, it's funny because owls are they're, they're so pervasive in our culture, you know. And he touched on that a lot too. He's like, you know, you can't you can't read too into any of this. You can't, you know, owls are they're a real creature. They're around. You're gonna see them. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. But there's the the last time I saw an owl, like a good clear like me and just an owl for a long time was when I was driving down this crazy um, windy road and. It was, uh, this is back when I lived in Michigan and it was, um, it was probably late spring or early summer. So I don't know if it was a barn owl that was still white from the winter or if it was like a you know snowy owl or some kind of Northern owl, but it was bright white. And I saw it out of my peripheral vision way before it got near us flying out of the woods and it flew all the way up to us and right in front of our car. And it was, the only thing that's weird about it is the, how weird it felt at the time, just yeah. seeing it, you know? They're they're so mysterious and so they're so weird to see, and I don't think like any animal like that. Um, like I'm like I said, I've not seen too many owls. No, I've seen, but I've only seen like two bears in the wild. Yeah, and when I, don't I think saw I've ever seen a bear in the wild, I don't really want to. But but when <laughs> I, but when I saw them, it it wasn't like a it was like a oh this is a really cool experience, but then nothing about it felt mystical. But when you see yeah. an owl 
flying like just through the woods it's it's totally different it's it's kind of weird like these animals that are around that you never see and, like i've i've had the same kind of feeling with coyotes like i've um I've seen coyotes around and they're just, they, they seem to me like really mysterious too. And maybe it's just because like, it's this dog that lives around us and you like, you don't know they're there, but they are. And I just find that so fascinating. My, my owl story is, (laughs) it's kind of, it's kind of bad, but like I was driving down a road, same kind of curvy road in Chattanooga. I was like 17, 18, and I'm just kind of like phasing out, right? Because it's late at night, and I'm driving home, and my parents live far away. And so I I see this thing come down from the tree, and I'm just like, what the hell is that? And it, 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 I, it was an owl. But I didn't even, and I was like, what? And it like, it was blinded by my car lights. And then like, I heard crunch of underneath my tires. Oh, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, I just killed an owl, dude. I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I just, I, it, it, it was, but it's, it scared the hell out of me, man. I was just cause it's just like this big thing coming out at you, at you from nowhere. I'd love to see one again. I really would. I really think they're fascinating. Like I have seen them. I've seen them like in the zoo or like in an aquarium somewhere. Like I've seen, there were a couple owls at the Charleston aquarium when I went there, but I haven't seen them in the wild. I love to see them in the wild. Uh, yeah, one, one thing I wanted to bring up that I forgot um, while we had Mike on the line was uh, they're uh, not owls necessarily, but birds of prey in general. Yeah. Their importance to to like Native American and pagan cultures, and I think it might be like a Carlos Castaneda reference in there, where just see, seeing a bird of prey is like an indication that you're on the 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 proper path and you're doing wow. what you're supposed to be doing in life. Really? Mm-hmm. I, I was I was thinking about that when I see like a hawk or something. Yeah, I see. I've I've seen hawks a lot around here. Like they 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 they're getting more and more common. Anyway, yeah, like funny story. Uh, my stepson was walking down, uh, downtown Nashville to the train station, and he's just walking, and all of a sudden he just sees this thing drop in front of him, and he looks down, and it's like this eviscerated pigeon, right? And he looks up, and he looks up, and there's this hawk just like sitting on a sitting on a ledge of a building, and I'm <laughs> and the the hawk had like killed the pigeon and then lost it. But he was like, that was such a, what a strange thing to happen. Well, anyway, let's talk about Donald Trump. (laughs) This is why I wanted Alyssa here. This will be a test of her endurance. (laughs) All right, let's, uh, let's play the clip real quick though. First. Okay. Okay, and I have said that, so I would like to take that back. He's really not that much of a lightweight. And as far as, and I have to say this, I have to say this, he hit my hands. Nobody has ever hit my hands. I've never heard of this one. Look at those hands. Are they small hands? (laughs) And he referred to my hands. If they're small, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee Okay. (laughs) Moving on. Okay, so now that we know the size of uh, Donald Trump's 
genitalia is ample enough to lead the nation. Yeah, well, I was worried up until now. <laughs> well, we don't know the exact size, but we know that there's no problem. There's no problem, so, as he says. Yeah. So okay. we can use our imagination All on right. that one. So I want to play a game right now. Shit. We just talked about, in the intro, Mitt Romney coming out against Trump. And this is the game that I want to play. I want to throw out, for the moment... We're in an alternate universe now. Trump has never said anything about immigrants, and he's never said anything about Muslims. I have okay. to imagine this. We have to, we have to imagine this. <laughs> okay. Nothing negative has ever been said about either group. This is how I'm going to have to imagine this. <laughs> so you guys are going on the journey with me. All right. So okay. let's just pretend like he's Let, not Donald Trump for a minute. Let's just pretend... That he's never said those things. Okay? Now, I'm going to read an open letter on Donald Trump from GOP national security leaders. Okay? This is a collective from the uh, Republican Party that has concerns about Donald Trump. We, the undersigned, members of the Republican national security community, represent a broad spectrum of opinion on America's role in the world and what is necessary to keep us safe and prosperous. We have disagreed with one another on many issues, including the Iraq war intervention in Syria, but we are united in our opposition to Donald Trump, to a Donald Trump presidency. Recognizing as we do the conditions in American politics that have contributed to his popularity, we nonetheless are obligated to state our core objections clearly. His vision of American influence and power in the world is wildly inconsistent and unmoored in principle. He swings from isolationism to military adventurism within the space of one sentence. His advocacy for aggressively waging trade wars is a recipe for economic disaster in a globally connected world. His embrace of the expansive use of torture is inexcusable. His hateful anti-Muslim rhetoric undercuts the seriousness of combating Islamic radicalism by alienating partners in the Islamic world, making significant contributions to the effort. Furthermore, it endangers the safety and constitutionality, constitutionally guaranteed freedoms of American Muslims. Controlling our border and preventing illegal immigration is a serious issue, but his insistence that Mexico will fund a wall on the southern border inflames unhelpful passions and unrests on an utter misreading of and contempt for our southern neighbor. Similarly, his insistence that close allies such as Japan must pay, pay vast sums for protection is the sentiment of a racketeer, not the leader of the alliances that have served us so well since World War II. His admiration for foreign dictators such as Vladimir Putin is unacceptable for the leader of the world's greatest democracy. I really wish we had the ding there. <laughs> he is fundamentally dishonest. Evidence of this includes his attempts to deny positions he has unquestionably taken in the past, including on the 2003 Iraq War and the 2011 Libyan conflict. Another ding. We accept that views evolve over time, but this is simply misrepresentation. His equation of business acumen with foreign policy experience is false. Not all lethal, lethal conflicts can be resolved as a real estate deal might, but there is no recourse to bankruptcy court in international affairs. Mr. Trump's own statements lead us to include that as president, he would use the authority of his office to act in ways that make America less safe and which would diminish our standing in the world. Furthermore, his expansive view of how 
Presidential power should be wielded against his detractors poses a distinct threat to civil liberty in the United States. Therefore, as committed and loyal Republicans, we are unable to support a party ticket with Mr. Trump as it's at its head. We commit ourselves to working energetically to prevent the election of someone so utterly unfitted to the office. Okay, that's their statement. Now, a few things that they have listed here. Again, we're taking out the immigrants, the Mexicans, we're taking out the Muslims, and the factor. Admiration for foreign dictators such as Vladimir Putin. His stance on the 2003 Iraq war and the 2011 Libyan conflict. All right. Now I want to go to something else. I'm going to go back to who signed this thing in a second. I want to go to a, this is from the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. This is from an article. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's called Panic Neocon Armchair Warhawks Pending Harshly Worded Letter on Trump Foreign Policy. Here's their problem with Trump's foreign policy. Here are the four points, or actually five points, that they are really criticizing Trump on. One, stating the obvious that the Iraq war was brought to you, to us by the liars of the neoconservative, neoconservative movement and has been a total disaster for the rest of us who are forced to pay for their fantasies of world domination. Two, suggesting that he might actually speak with Russian President Vladimir Putin to see if U.S.-Russia differences can be worked out without a potentially world-ending nuclear war. Three, though arguing that he is hugely pro-Israel, nevertheless suggesting that if the U.S. is to play a role in the Israel-Palestine issue, this, this institute would argue that it should not. The U.S. side should, in the interest of any chance of success, take a neutral role in the process. Wondering why on earth Obama listened to idiotic neocon device and overthrew Libya's strongman leader only to see the red carpet laid down for ISIS. And five, suggesting that it may be a good thing that Russia be bombing ISIS into oblivion and that we might want to just sit back and let that happen for once. So one of the guys that is behind this, this is later in this article, leading the strongly worded letter campaign is Dove Zakheim. You recognize that name? No. You recognize that name, Rob? Uh, yeah. He's come up on this <clears throat> show a couple of times. Who is George <laughs> W. Bush's controller of the Pentagon somehow lost track of a trillion or so dollars. It's a safe bet. Zach Heim is not spending his retirement for government service in a double Y trailer somewhere. Top military officers will retire, screams Zach Heim, if under Trump, the U.S. abandons the neocon version of American exceptionalism. Dove Zach Heim. He's a comptroller at the Pentagon. He's the one that testif- helped to testify with Donald Rumsfeld the day before 9-11 that $3 trillion, with a T, were lost from the Pentagon's budget. He also came up in our discussion with Rebecca Roth, and before that, he came up in our discussion with Scott Bennett because he was Scott Bennett's boss. Uh-huh. And Scott Bennett blames Dove Zakheim for being one of the guys that sent him to jail 
the federal prison. Yes, it's also clear now. Okay. I remember. <clears throat> you understand what neoconservative means? This concept. Neoconservative. Yeah, just assume I don't. <laughs> okay, we, you have conservatism, right. which is basically, well, what Ron Paul represents. You know, you uh, libertarianism, basically. The idea that the government doesn't interfere in anything. And that includes um, invading any country that you can possibly invade to take their resources, which is basically what the Project for a New American Century which was written in 2000 and signed by many of the same people that signed the letter that I read, I read that they where they criticized Trump, uh, where they, they made this document. And in that same document, they also talk about how there was what was needed to get everybody behind their agenda was a new Pearl Harbor. And then the next year we had 9-11. Ah. Okay. So it's sort of condoning the false flag sort of. Yeah, in a way. Here's the big problem. And here's where I, I actually can agree with Trump or whoever it is that is pushing Trump's foreign policy. What's wrong? Iraq was an obvious disaster. The neoconservatives were all over that. Okay. Uh, what's his name? Wolfowitz, the assistant defense secretary. Um, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney. You know, they all influenced Bush, Condoleezza Rice. They all influenced Bush to go in and invade Iraq. And that, as we now know, because we have ISIS, was a complete disaster. But the neoconservative movement is has did not stop with George W. Bush. It kept going uh, because you have had a real push, and Libya was a part of this in 2011. Um, basically, there was this idea that we were going to extend American influence into the Middle East, into several countries, and. Um, General Wesley Clark, who ran for president in 2004, the Democrats, actually says that he talked to some of these people, uh, these military and also civilian planners, that said there were six countries on a list to basically take over. Iraq was on there. Libya was on there. Syria was on there and a few other a few other countries. Uh, another one would be Iran. Well, Obama has essentially kept the neoconservative program going, basically. And he did it first in Libya, and then also Ukraine. There's a lot of the neoconservative footprints on that as well. So when you have them criticizing Trump for wanting to talk to Vladimir Putin. I mean, the only person that's willing to talk to Vladimir Putin 
and it, and no one else is willing to, that to me just sounds crazy. It's like we need to we need to be talking to the Russians. This is exactly what we need to be because the last I checked, they had a bunch of nuclear weapons still aimed at us. Yeah, and there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world that affects America and America's immediate future. And I don't think it's being discussed real heavily as far as the upcoming elections go. Yeah. The, the you know, the face of our country, you know, who's going to represent us internationally, that sort of thing is going to be very important. And, and I, and I agree that, that Trump probably isn't the guy. I agree no, with no. that. Not, not, not as far as a face of America goes, but, um, but I, those those few things that you just brought up, I, I agree with for sure. And they're, they're not things I've heard anyone else touch on, is my point. Right. And, and, and I mean, look, it, I don't think that the neoconservatives, I really don't think that what they care about is their program, their agenda going forward. And so many of them are actually thinking of siding with Hillary of of just bolting the party and siding with Hillary because they do not agree with Trump's foreign policy. They don't agree with it. And Hillary, because we already know in in, in 2011 when Libya happened, when she, when she that comment about we came, we we came, we saw he died, talking about Gaddafi, and she gives that little turtle that she likes to give. You know, we already know that she would be more than willing to continue Obama's policies that he continued from Bush. So Trump's policies are a break from the neoconservative policies, basically. One exception would be Iran. Iran would be one exception uh, because he does ape a lot of the same attitudes about Iran every time that the Republicans get up there and talk on the debate. They just obsess about bombing Iran. But I, I'm, I know we're the show's getting long, but I, I just want to I want to read down, look at the list here of people that have signed this thing. Okay, so we have uh, Dove and Zakheim and Roger Zakheim. I believe Roger Zakheim has his son. We already talked about Dove Zakheim, who he is. Philip Zelikow was another. Bush guy, another Bush bot. He was actually on the 9-11 commission, blocked a lot of evidence being put in that would have reflected negative negatively on Bush and the neoconservative and the neoconservatives. He's one of them. That's someone I recognize right away. And there's there's a few others. I mean, there's there's a lot of people on here. But I really think that if we look at if we look at why Romney is being trundled out, why they're trying to keep why they're trying to have Cruz and Rubio and Rubio is their boy, okay, very much so. While they're trying and even Kasich, they're trying to they're trying to trundle these guys out to prevent Trump from getting from getting the election, the nomination is really because they want this agenda to go forward. They could care less about any of the other stuff about the about immigration about the muslims about any any of the rest of the stuff right. or who else like becomes president as long as any of these people well, win 
like I said before, they're Hil- all just a figurehead, and they're go- and they're going to bolt to Hillary if Trump is the nominee. It's, right. See, that's the problem with politics. It's like the Game of Thrones. There's 47 plots, and I yeah. can't follow all of it. <laughs> <laughs> but Bernie yeah. Sanders won another state tonight. Oh, did he? Yes, he did. Which state? Uh, crap. <laughs> Maine. Yeah, because he won oh, okay, Nebraska. Yeah. Maine's and caucus, the Republican caucus, was yesterday, and yep, then this was he the dominated. Day. But now, now we can end the game, and we can insert we can insert Bush uh, uh, Trump. We can insert reinsert Trump's uh, Muslim hating and his immigrant hating, and we're all good because quite frank, quite frankly, Trump still does worry me. But it's obviously I think that he's gotten his feathers plucked a little bit this week, and he has really tapped into. And I'm not really going to go into this now. I'm going to try to talk about this with Scotty next week, but he has really tapped into this angry white person motif. Oh yeah. Yes. And that's, that's getting scary. And that's another thing that could just let the genie. That's another thing. If Trump does not succeed, if he doesn't get the nomination, somebody else is going to come along and whip it up again. So, Politics is getting is getting scary, guys. So I just prefer we'll just talk about owls. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, next time uh, we will be talking to Scotty Roberts. Is going to come on talk about the Paradigm Symposium. He's going to sit in with us, and we're going to have a special guest that's never been on a podcast, as far as I know. Her name is Jeanette S. Tulip. Uh, hopefully, she will be on, and we're going to talk about the Bigfoot UFO connection. And so we will see you guys next time on Conspiranormal! I know that you think owls are cool. Today you're going to learn more here at school. So here's some owl facts that you may not know. You can take them with you wherever you go.
are so quiet, they barely make a sound. It helps them sneak up on critters crawling on the ground. Learning about owls is really, really fun. Now you can share your knowledge with everyone. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.